The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We are looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 at 26. Well, hopefully you didn't wake up and find out the hard way, or be reminded the hard way, that the winter parking ban or restrictions are now in place here in the city of St. John's, regardless of the weather. And I think that's the problem that most people have. Look, when there's snow on the ground that needs to be cleared, we all need our neighbors to get their vehicles off the road. Because if not, what you have is that big bump out of snow, before you know it, you got a little cow path going, when in fact, if the cars were off the road, the plows would be able to clean curb to curb in both directions, but... We know that some people, even when it's the you know daylight hours and you're out shoveling your driveway, you'll put your vehicle just a little bit downwind from your home so that you don't get that snowplow piling that floods in the work that you just completed. But the winter parking restrictions are in place. So starting last night, you are not allowed to park on the street outside the downtown area between 12.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. no matter what. And again, that's the problem, isn't it? Look, we understand that the bylaw enforcement officers, they have a job to do. But, for instance, last night, if you woke up this morning to a ticket because you simply forgot about the restrictions and the ban that's now in place, but if there's no snow to be cleared, no ice to be controlled, it's kind of hard to accept that ticket. But now you are reminded, in the downtown, vehicles are not permitted to park on the street between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., regardless, once again, of the street or snow conditions. That includes water from Waldegrave to Prescott, Duckworth from New Gower to Cochrane. All right. I'm one of those ones who got a ticket one night, went, fell asleep on the couch, not a flake in sight, went out to move the vehicle, and bang, ticket on the front. All right, as if you heard, as you heard Brian Mador in the VOCM newscast mentioned, tonight is the big night at the World Junior Championships. So around supper time, the Swedes in Czechia. One question there. When did it become Czechia? You know, it was Czechoslovakia, then it was the Czech Republic, then it was the Czechs, and now it's Czechia. There's something new. I first time I even heard of it was this World Junior Tournament, but any of the Swedes and Czechia get kicked off around supper, and then following that game is Canada versus the United States, a classic rivalry. It was long the case that it was Canada-Russia, right? That was the big one, and that everyone looked forward to, and we understand why Russia's not at this particular tournament, even though there is a sense of missing the Russians at this particular tournament, because they're always a key team to keep an eye on. But anyway, it's now us and the United States are the massive rivalry in men's hockey in particular. I guess in women's hockey, for sure. Canada and the United States. You know, everyone knows who Conor Bedard is now. But we need a couple of other guys to step up, whether it be our very own Zach Dean. But I got a feeling in my bones that Adam Fantilli, who's got all the tools, he looks like he's waiting, just waiting, or we're all waiting, for him to have a breakout game. So between him and Stankoven and Gunther and Zellweger, we need a big effort tonight. And, of course, Thomas Milic between the pipes. Also, coming up around 10 o'clock, a bit of local hockey action. You know, the West Coast has long been trying to get a senior hockey circuit back on track. They've had some success. Remember a few years ago when they gave it a shot? They had huge crowds coming out. So one of the, uh, the guys behind it, one of the finest athletes the province has ever produced, Darren Colburn, is going to join us around 10 o'clock this morning to talk about the puck drop on the opening weekend this weekend on the West Coast. We'll hear from Darren. Another quick hockey note. 
It was on this date in 1984 that the Edmonton Oilers beat the Minnesota North Stars 12-8, became the highest-scoring NHL game until December 11th when the same Edmonton Oilers in 1985 beat the Blackhawks in Chicago 12-9. That's the highest-scoring game since they implemented the red line in 1943. Okay, let's welcome the province's New Year's baby. What do you say? So, Mom, Megan Vautier from Puchko. She became the first mother to deliver a baby in this province just a few hours into the wee morning on New Year's Day. So, Casey Marie Howell uh, was born at 7 pounds and 13 ounces. She's got a healthy set of lungs and apparently a full head of hair. Looks a bit like that, apparently. Her partner is a gentleman named Alan Howell. So, the little Casey has dark hair, dark eyes. And when you are the New Year's baby, you automatically get the present of a car seat from the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association. Apparently, the NLMA has presented over 370 car seats to families across the province over the past 37 years. So congratulations to uh, Megan and to Alan, and welcome to young Casey Marie Howell. One of the tricks when you become a new parent is trying to figure out how to appropriately and safely and securely install a, a baby seat in the car. It sounds really fundamental, doesn't it? Bang it in, tighten up the straps, away you go. But it's really a bit of a trick to with the pressure regarding your knee against it, pushing the, the child seat into position as aggressively as possible. And, of course, rear-facing for a while and then front-facing when they get big enough to have a little bit of control of their noggin. So welcome to Casey Marie Howell, the province's New Year's baby. Okay. S- sticking with babies for a second. You know, as of Monday... The province was offering $10 a day daycare, of course, an agreement signed between the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and the federal government. I personally think this is an excellent idea. I think there's lots of literature and evidence out there that points to $10 a day for affordable and accessible daycare, childcare, early childhood education has a ripple effect throughout the society, throughout the community. Like, I don't have children that small, so I don't need daycare any longer, so I have no skin in the proverbial game. But it does work. The problem is is that even if they're trying to invest in this particular program, create some 6,000 new childcare spaces for children under 6, the biggest problem or hurdle that young families are facing is access, not only with you got the affordability issue dealt with, but access to, especially for children under the, under the age of 2. It's great to have the programs in place. It also comes along with additional training for early childhood educators and increased pay commensurate with their responsibilities. But supply is the problem. So we've got a huge difference between regulated and unregulated. Maybe some urban settings are much different in so far as capacity goes versus more rural settings and private in-home. So it's great to have it out there, 10 bucks. But if you can't find the provider, then 10 bucks might as well be what it was pre-pandemic, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 dollars per day, which is prohibitive. When you look at the landscape in realistic terms, and we talk about population growth, by and large, it's because of immigration. The death rate is double the birth rate in this province. So not only welcome to young Casey Howell, but I wonder where the province is in creating more on the supply side. Yes, we've got to do whatever we have to do to make sure the ratio between staff and early childhood educators and the children in the daycare program is where it needs to be. But supply is a massive problem. So with the disjointed landscape in the daycare world, you know, 
part and parcel with $10 a day, there's got to be keen focus on how we address that issue. He can't magically create 600 spaces. He can't magically do away with or address in com comprehensive fashion the difference between regulated, unregulated, in the home, friend of yours, whatever the case may be. So still a long row to hoe when we talk about daycare. But if you are a family that has been looking and maybe coming up uh, against brick walls, 10 bucks sounds great, but when you can't find a space, that's the issue. And apparently, and again, I don't have small children any longer, it's the real crunch and pressure in finding a space for your two-year-old or younger. So let's talk about that if you're so inclined. Also, so the K-12 system, back in action. We know that there's the potential for job action at Memorial University now. The talks broke off, even though they thought they had a deal. So the faculty association representing some 800 employees, you know, once you get your PhD and you have all the years under your belt and get tenure, a lot of job protection associated with it and a fair rate of pay. But as you're a per-course instructor, only able to take on two courses per semester at 5000 per, so salary becomes one of the huge issues at month. Also, apparently at Memorial University, it's the only institution of higher learning in the country that does not have a position on the Board of Regents representing the faculty. So a member of MUNFA sitting on the Board of Regents. I didn't know that until I read a news story sometime in the past year. But in the K-12 system, you know, we heard pretty extraordinary rates of absenteeism leading into the holiday season. I wonder what it looks like on the heels because... People did what we needed and want to do, was to be with friends and family over the holiday season. If that was something that was uh, hopefully afforded to you and available to you, but if you're seeing or hearing anything in K-12 that we should talk about, let's do exactly that. All right, and maybe you traveled over the holidays. And we all saw the unbelievable stories, whether it be Impact by WestJet or Air Canada or Sunwing or Southwest Airlines. Imagine how Southwest went over the holidays. Boom. So the responsibility for dealing with all of these complaints is that the Canadian Transportation Agency, the CTA, they're a quasi-judicial tribunal. They have a huge backlog. In the last federal budget, there was millions of dollars put in to try to deal with the backlog. But some people who are amongst the 30,000 who have filed a formal complaint with the CTA, they're waiting up to 18 months to have their case evaluated and a decision rendered. What people are now doing? is taking matters into their own hands and taking the airline to small claims court and getting turnarounds and out-of-court settlements offered within days as opposed to waiting a year or a year and a half for the Canadian Transportation Agency to deal with your formal complaint. So if you're in that boat, either you're waiting or you're going to take them to uh, small claims court or you did successfully take one of the airlines to small claims court, tell us about it. In addition to that, you know, it's not all the feds, and it's not all the airline, it's not all the airport authority. It's a combination of all of them that has led to the confusion and the backlog and congestion at airports across the country. So whether you're waiting for a passport and or for your Nexus passport to have been renewed, which is very helpful for the frequent business travel in particular, we are open to those stories today. All right, let's stick with a little bit of transportation. This will be controversial some of it with merit, some of it, uh, I'm not so sure. So the province is working towards trying to find a way to crack down on uninsured drivers. It's a good idea to do what we can do on that front because the number of uninsured drivers inevitably, inevitably leads to higher insurance premiums paid by those of us who actually have a policy in place. But here's what I don't really get. 
So the department, and uh, that's the service and minister Sarah Studley, her department says 3 to 7% of automobiles on the road were uninsured. So not what we're apparently going to try to do is have a digital insurance validation program. Okay. So if you don't have insurance, it will lead to suspending your license, eventually suspending your registration. I'm not entirely sure how this works, though. So, okay, I've got this new digital verification ID. You know, shouldn't it and will it not be as simple as, number one, we should keep our own plates forever, right? right? Once you get your license and your first vehicle, that should be your plate until you hang up your keys. On top of that, when to go to re-register, is it as simple as people will have insurance in place to provide proof of, register their vehicle, and then cancel their insurance? That's probably what goes on, right? But if you get pulled over... It's easy enough for the law enforcement officer to verify whether or not, A, you have an active and valid driver's license, B, the vehicle is registered, and C, whether or not you have valid ongoing insurance coverage. So I'm not really sure what this does. And if you know more about it than I do, which you probably do, because I'm still living in a bit of a a holiday fog here, let me know. In addition to that, and this is where it's going to get controversial in some corners, is the province moving towards, and not the only province in the country, moving towards a digital ID pilot project in 2023? Okay. The minister responsible, once again, is Sarah Studley. She says, it's an opportunity to protect the privacy of Canadians, to reduce fraud. She points to a couple of examples, which I think makes sense. You know, when you are asked to present, say, at the liquor store, to prove that you're 19 plus, so you can buy the bottle of whatever you got on the counter. So your license displays a photo of you, your address, your date of birth, the driver's license number. She says that's a lot of info to share, much akin to going to a healthcare clinic, and you're asked, and, uh, asked at the counter by the receptionist or the triage nurse, whatever the case may be, for a lot of personal information that people don't really feel comfortable bawling out. Like, for instance, not only where, you're li- where you live, but your social insurance number and MCP numbers and things like that. People don't like sharing them. And so this digital ID will apparently just have a little green check that says, for instance, in this case, you're the age majority, so you can buy the bottle of booze. This is where it gets controversial for many. Not only the privacy commissioners across the country, because privacy is paramount. No question. And there's got to be lots of oversight and monitoring of that particular approach to digital ID. You've seen it in social media circles that some people will insinuate or they will allege that we're going down a path with social credit, and if the government doesn't like what you say or think or write or feel or ball about, that they'll shut you down. For starters, the government stresses this will be optional. But here's what I've never really quite understood why all the digital concerns. You know, go back and think about it. So the the COVID alert app, people were up in arms about it because the government was tracking you, when in fact, they're not tracking you. You know, it didn't even have GPS. It was a Bluetooth issue. Then you get the Vax Pass and thought people thought, well, they're prying into my personal information regarding vaccination status, which is a fair question. And then the Arrive Can app, which all it really did was give you a digital opportunity to do exactly what your paper declaration form said. So every piece of info that people will be worried about, banking info, social insurance number, you know, contact uh, points with CRA and otherwise, when you think about it, Regardless of where we are, whether it be at a customs declaration uh, uh, stop point or checkpoint or at the liquor store or at the clinic or at the hospital, wherever, all the information that we really should go to uh, great lengths to protect was provided to us by the government and our government-regulated industry like a bank. So I'm not really sure what the major lead concern is here because at the exact same time, 
People are carrying around a smartphone. Your smartphone knows a lot more about you than most every other entity on the face of the earth does. And you're using Google. And remember when James McLeod broke the nationwide story about just how much Tim Hortons knew about you if you downloaded their app? So at the same time, we use all these other applications quite carefree, and they're quite nefarious when compared to some other digital identifications that we're moving towards. Now, it will be important for the government to ensure for the long term, for uh, infinity, that the option is there to not participate in the digital ID, but that's going to get people going, and I guess that's why I brought it up. You want to talk about it? We can do it. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Very quickly, and I appreciate the patience of Placentia Mayor Keith Pearson. We're going to talk about what they see in their community with drugs and violence and what have you, but a couple of quick ones before we get going. Mentioned yesterday that the Natural Resources Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, one of the pieces of legislation that he'll be bringing forward this year is regarding whatever people think is a just transition for jobs in the fossil fuel industries into what they call more sustainable jobs. You know, if people need to be retrained, additional training, they see a brighter future in another industry. You know, I thought when the oil fund was created, some $376 million to help oil companies, a lot of that money should have gone to oil company employees who maybe thought, maybe now's the opportunity to use my skills and problem-solving uh, capacity to move into something else. So that'll be part of it. But notably inside of this legislation, the two key focus areas will be transitioning for jobs, individuals, and that old Atlantic loop. I almost get sick and tired of talking about it because the federal government announced it out of nowhere. It's some $5 billion project to help coordinate power going to Nova Scotia and New Brunswick from Hydro-Quebec and Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. It all sounds great, but the government announced it. And then, lo and behold, when Minister LeBlanc was asked about it on this program, uh, well, no, not yet, because we're still doing our due diligence. So, consequently, it became nothing more than a marketing plan. You know, a feel-good, look-good, uh, photo opportunity and news conference when nothing's come to pass yet. But if it does, that could be important, and we can take it on today. And then just one more on that just transition business. You hear from Environment Minister Stephen Gibo. And he says the decision to green light or release from environmental assessment, uh, Equinor's find out in the Flemish Pass being baited or the his most difficult ever. Now, if you know Stephen Gibo from his past lives, an environmental activist, and there's lots of really extraordinary examples of his activism in play. So we're anticipating some sort of business sanction, apparently, maybe this year, by Equinor to talk about whether or not they proceed with Beta Nord. But one of the sticking points has got to be. Not only do we need to understand an equity stake between the province and Equinor and or uh, a new royalty regime, possibly, we don't know. But there are hundreds of millions of dollars on the line of royalties. Given the fact that it's outside the 200-mile limit, there's going to be monies paid based on Article 82 of the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. So the opportunity to even uh, explore and extract outside 200 miles was because of this. The province doesn't want to pay. The feds obviously don't want to pay either. But it's got to be negotiated. I wonder what kind of sticking point this is. The province says, well, Canada signed on, not Newfoundland and Labrador. So consequently, the feds should pay. Some political onlookers say that comes across as quite petty. But whoever and wherever you are, if you are anxious to get an update on Beta Nord, you know full well that this is a big part of the ongoing conversation as to whether or not they're going to proceed. Because on their own business model... Anything over $35 a barrel sounds good and looks good to Equinor, and they say full steam ahead. 
but I would imagine behind closed doors is quite contentious over the what will absolutely be hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe into the billions of dollars, that someone is going to be responsible to pay, maybe cost share, but it's going to the United Nations to be distributed amongst developing countries. I had a lot more here, but I don't want to keep the mayor waiting too long. Right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. We've got some updated numbers regarding the recruitment of uh, healthcare workers that we're going to share with you a little bit later in the show. Oh, and very quick one. Four companies that have made uh, Atlantic Business Magazine's top 20 places to work. Four out of the top 20 are right here in this province, based on the selection committee uh, evaluating 127 nominations. Congratulations. Collab Software, Newfoundland Labrador Credit Union, Ray Creative Agency. I just saw, uh, Jen, or I saw Steve yesterday, uh, Jen's partner. And Wedgwood Insurance, they made the list. Congratulations to them. If you're looking for a gig, you wouldn't be too bad if you worked for one of them. Did we say we're on Twitter? Yeah, we're there. Our email address, openlineofiosim.com. My favorite when you call. Do it right now. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Placentia. That's Keith Pearson. Mayor Pearson, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Not too bad. Happy New Year to you and to your listeners also. The very same to you. We appreciate the uh, the good tidings. So, unfortunately, while we all try to ease into 2023, there's no easing when we talk about public safety and what we're seeing on our streets. We've had lots of conversation here whether it be about the downtown area and certain uh, neighborhoods that are experiencing some serious issues with addictions and consequently some violence. What are you seeing in Placentia? Uh, Patty, we're probably no different here in the last, uh, probably probably last year, I'd imagine. I would just go back to last year we've seen a, an increase in crime and, you know, us as a town council trying to be proactive in the past year. We've uh, probably in the last six months we met with the Minister of Public Safety who then, uh, you know, arranged a meeting with the head of the RCMP to be able to voice our concerns with regards to policing in our local area and the amount of officers that are got boots on the ground looking to increase them. Uh, I guess the RCMP, you know, like any other area in Newfoundland right now, is going, I believe, is going through a shortage of police officer and recruitment and retention of uh, officers. Uh, they're finding it very difficult from what I can hear on the street also is that, yeah, they're getting burnt out. They don't have enough people to keep up demand. Uh, and trying to get things, you know, trying to do this, it's uh, taking a little stro- uh, strain on their lives also. It's certainly part of it, because like we say, nothing slows you down quite like the presence of a police cruiser on the highway. Nothing tries to make you w- wash your P's and Q's more than a cop on the beat if you're, say, for instance, downtown. Same thing goes with drugs, but unfortunately we've got this distinct overlap between just how addictive the new zombie-like synthetics are, even if you are not wanting to go to prison, not wanting to be addicted. You see a cop right there on the road. If you need your fix then, people are willing to take the chance because the addictive property is just so overwhelming that policing seems after the fact. More and more prior to it becoming a problem for you and your family, that's where we don't do enough, I don't think. What do you think? I agree 100%, Patty. Like right now in our local area, we've got a lot of residents right now that are scared, like very scared about what's happening in our area and where our area is after going in the past year. Uh, I will say I've got great cooperation from the local RCMP. Uh, They have actually added a recruit to our assortment here in the past number of months, but right now that recruit is only good to to stay with the officer. He actually can't operate on his own, so really it didn't add nothing in the short term. It will in the long term. But we're still short members here, and, uh, you know, like we, if people go off on any kind of leave, uh, they're having trouble replacing these people within the uh, within the communities. 
So, you know, police presence is huge. If you don't have police presence, I mean, uh, people know that if they can do things, they're going to continue on to crime. And uh, right now we're experiencing in our area, and it probably won't get any better because if we start seeing our gentia take off like it's been talked about and, and everybody's seen it, it's only going to get worse as the Sonovas now starts up again in April and a 1,000 people come into the community, whether through transit work. Uh, and then you also got other things happening in Argentia. Uh, you know, Byzantia certainly is looking uh, to, you know, put pressure on the RCMP to increase police, uh, policing in our local area. You know, this might be a bit of a tangent, but the serious issues we see with drugs are not linked with the so-called recreational use of cannabis, what have you. Just like when you look at what happens in the Fort McMurray's of the world, when they were so quick to threaten suspension or to fire you because they've seen or they've identified uh, drugs in your system, it takes the cannabis so long to go away. So what did people do who actually had money in their pocket? They turned to the cocaine to the world, which go away so quickly, but yet pose a much more serious issue with addiction and the potential for violence. So we didn't we didn't get that one right, and apparently we're still on the road of not understanding that particular difference between using, say, for instance, cannabis or hashish versus methamphetamines or cocaine or heroin or whatever else on the road. So we set ourselves up for some of these problems. I, mean, I know that's a broad stroke statement, but in many regards, it seems quite right to me because just imagine, people are, people want to get high, people are going to get high. If they want to have a drink, they're going to have a drink. But if I know that if I smoked a joint on Friday and I can't go back to work Monday without failing a drug test, but I can do cocaine on Friday, well, I don't know what the days are, let's say Thursday and go back to work Monday, we kind of set ourselves up to allow these highly addictive, very dangerous drugs to be the drug of choice, especially in places where they have good paying jobs. Without a doubt, Patty, uh, you're seeing that. That's what we're seeing here. Is the uh, it's not it's not the marijuana. It's not the thing that's been legalized. It's the actual uh, cocaine, meth, uh, the hard drugs. And the other thing you got to remember too is that these people were making a living on this one time, and then it became legalized. So they're going to find another way. And their other way is selling harder drugs in the in a prospering our area and throughout the province. How different is it today than it was? Two years ago, three years ago, five years ago. Well, it's for us. I mean, for our community, like, uh, and I've talked to many people. I've never seen people live in fear like they are right now, and and reaching out to me to see what we can do as a uh, as a town, and and how we go from here, and what we can do as a community to help combat this. So, I mean, I mean, I've talked to the sergeant here, local art detachment here in Bazinga. Uh, you know, he's been quite helpful. Uh, he's been, uh, we've met many times over the past, oh God, the last year. Uh, he's, you know, he's keeping me up to date on what's on the go. And, you know, one of the things we're going to have to do is like talk to, like, hold a public consultation uh, session with the public to help in regards to safety and things that we can do. And where do we go from here? And how do we combat this problem as a community to, uh, you know, for people to feel safe again? I don't think it'll ever go back to the times that, you know, we left the door open in the nighttime when we went to bed. But we certainly want to know that our kids are able to go out in the evening. Right now, they can't. Or people afraid to put their kids out in the evening, let them go out and play like we did when we were young. So definitely things have changed. What does that look like, though, realistically in the community, Mayor Pearson? You know, you, we want to keep an eye on each other's property. And if our kids are out playing together, we all want to have a look out the window while we're washing dishes, make sure everything is hunky-dory and that they're safe. But people are not only fearful of... You know, what might happen while they're in bed asleep, but fearful of even engaging some of these folks who they're already afraid of, and who knows what they're going to do, who knows if they're carrying a weapon or not, and they will 
chew glass to get their next fix. So what does the community support look like here outside of policing? And, and Patty, that's a very good question. And that's what, you know, that's probably the last wall, like, and since all this happened in the last, definitely come to a head in the last number of weeks here in Provincia is, is how do we how do we do that and how how does the community come to uh, grips with that and, and I'm hoping that the RCMP people can uh, you know bring people in that are experts in this area to, to help us you know navigate through this that uh, other places been through it and things that we can do to make our community safer and that's what we're looking to do here I mean we want people to move to our community and be a good place to you know to grow up and live and and, and work. And right now, uh, that image is certainly not there for Byzantia. I mean, we're in the news, and, and not for a good reason. And, and we got to find ways to make this uh, make this community safer. And you know, and we expect you know the RCMP and that to be on board with us, which I believe they will. I'm sure they. I mean, their role to uh, serve, protect, and serve is for the 99.9 percent of police officers. That's why they're there. We're so strapped for resources that you know, like even we've talked about some of the notorious neighborhoods in town here. You know, we hear stories where the police are there and they're called repeatedly. They show up, but the same faces that they show up to question or to investigate remain there after the cops leave. Like, I don't know where the gap is between knowing who the problem is and getting them off the street. And that is that is a very good point, Patty, and that's what we're dealing with right here in Byzantia. We know where the problem areas are. We know what the problems are. But the problem is how do you get them off the street? How do you get them? Because some of these people need help. I mean, there's no doubt. How do we get them the help they need in order to be a functioning person in society? How do we get them to the point is that, you know what, they're behind bars right now and hopefully there are programs in place to rehabilitate them. But right now, that's exactly where we're to. We know where the problems are. We know where the issues are within our community. But the problem with it is is that, you know, how do we get from point A to point B to have this straightened up? I wish we had the answers, but it's a complex issue and it needs... The community, municipal leaders, provincial leaders, uh, all law enforcement agencies, uh, the Department of Health Community Services, because sometimes what we're talking about here is a health crisis, as much as it is a public safety crisis. Uh, it's good to have you on the show this morning. Keith, anything else you'd like to add? No, and I agree with you 100%. The only way we get this fixed is everybody working together. We need our local detachments. We need our, our governments. We need our RCMP. We need people working together to make this help this problem and, and address it. I mean, there's a problem going uh, across, right across the province. It's not only uh, in Byzantia. I mean, no. we've heard about it on the news yesterday in in, in, in West uh, with regards to the drug bus. So, you know, uh, you know, working together is the only way we're going to solve this. So I just want to say thanks thanks for your time and allow me to get the uh, uh, talk to you on this uh, subject that is very important to the people of Byzantia. I appreciate your time this morning, Mayor Pearson. Stay in touch. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's the Mayor Placentia, Keith Pearson. Oh, boy, you know, it is a complicated issue. And I think we might have a little bit more success when we talk about it as, as much as a health crisis as it is criminal justice, because it is. I mean, the most recent numbers uh, that were up to October of last year, 20 people a day dying from an opioid overdose. overdose. The dangerous drugs of years gone by are quite recreational at this point. It's the unbelievable dangers presented by these synthetic zombie-creating uh, drugs that is crushing Canadians. And when you say, look, you made a bad decision, you're going to have to live with it or get the help you need, it sometimes oversimplifies just how unbelievably addictive some of these drugs are and the difficulty in recognizing that you even need help. So nobody wants to hear it, but until we start with dealing with the health aspect of this, we're probably just going to spin our wheels. 
if we want to stand back in our quiet moments and be honest with ourselves, the war on drugs has been a miserable failure. It simply hasn't worked. It sounded right. You know, when Nancy Reagan told me to just say no, and when the commercial showed a fried egg and said, this is my brain on drugs, that's all fine and dandy. But after billions, if not trillions of dollars, in North America, South America, have been spent on the war on drugs, we're no further ahead. In fact, we're well behind. You know, the, the bushels of marijuana associated with the half bushel of grapefruit that came across into Florida, that had a certain impact. But then the cocaine of the world, you arrest one, there's another one right behind him. You seize a kilo, there's one right behind it. So we just have had that pound of flesh mentality where all we need to do is to bust people, throw them in prison, uh, throw away the key. Fair enough. The measure for me would be whether or not it works. And the unfortunate reality is it just simply has not. So maybe a health crisis focus would be possibly, possibly a little bit more beneficial to public safety bit more beneficial to individuals who fall prey to some of these highly addictive, very dangerous, toxic drugs. But I don't think the appetite is there in the country for it. Remember, it's not that long ago that many people were completely frustrated, if not furious, with the fact that the federal government was going to decriminalize and to legalize some recreational cannabis products. And that didn't go over very well in some corners. And I get it because change is hard, especially when we're talking about the quote-unquote enabling or normalizing, something which was very much taboo. But again, if you're completely opposed to anybody who smokes a joint or takes a drink or does crack or cocaine or heroin or methamphetamines, the fact of the matter is people are going to do it. The trick is how do we deal with it in the best fashion? And criminal justice approach, the war on drugs, it just hasn't worked. Not because I say so, but because the documentation is really quite clear. But it's a problem across this province and across this country. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Dave is there to talk about Halibut status, and then we're going to talk about the Catholic churches. I assume those are the properties that are up for sale or have been sold. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three, David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you and your family and everybody at VOCM. Thank you, David. Same to you. Yeah, I'm calling about uh, the enrollment committee of uh, Alibu because I was one of the founding members with the Newfoundland Indians in 2000 or, or 2001. Okay. And I lost my status by one point, and now I got a letter as approve uh, the enrollment committee has approved your application because you meet all the criteria to become a founding member of the Alabu Mi'kmaq First Nation Band. This means that your name will be added to the updated founding members list for the Alabu Mi'kmaq First Nation Band. According to Section 7 of the Supplement Agreement and recommended to the Governor and Council for approval in the fall of 2022, should it be approved, you will be registered as a status in Indian under the Indian Act. So I was approved, and now they're saying it got to go before the governor and council to, to be approved again. So if they approved, why have it got to be approved again? And I've been to the MHA, the federal member for the Bay of Islands, and I can't get no answer there. And I've been to the Alibu office, and he don't even know who the governor and council is. So if I was approved, why have I, why have I got to go before somebody else and approve it again? Because they're they're only contradicting herself. 
Why? What was the reason that you lost one point and consequently lost your status? Uh, sir, because of residency. residency Simple as that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, but what it was, I live. I got papers back for over twenty years ago that I lived at this residence all the time and everything else. I brought it up and I sent in about twenty or twenty-five different lots of papers. That's why he said I was approved again because I met the criteria. And now they're telling me that I, w- I was approved. And now it says it got to go before the governing council for approval in the fall. Should it be approved, you would then be registered in status. So if it was approved, it was approved by the enrollment committee. So why have it got to be approved by the governing council? And I've been trying to get answer who the governing council is, but I can't get no answer. And, and the Alamo McMahon band, he, he don't know who, who the governor is. And I've been to the federal member for the Bay of Islands to their office, and he don't even know who it is, and they can't find out nothing on it. This goes all the way back to, as you mentioned, 2001 or whatever the year was, where they brought yes. forward the federal process for applications for HALPU status. They yeah. had a number in mind, and the number that they had in mind that was eclipsed, I'm going to suggest, maybe by five or tenfold. And consequently, the scorecard became very confusing. So there was never been a legitimate reason offered to me as to why a brother and sister raised in the same home until they're adults, one goes off to the military or one goes to St. John for a job, all of a sudden one yes. gets it, one doesn't, because you're no less indigenous or Halapu or whatever the case may be if you live in Con River versus St. John's. Like you are or you're not. So it just has been a case of the federal government had an idea, a number in mind, and when they didn't they didn't hit their target, they just reverse engineered it. And consequently, it's been nothing but a ridiculous, convoluted debacle ever since. But, uh, but Patty, if I, if I was a member... After New Gland Indian Band, one of the founding members for 15 or 20 years, and I was accepted. All of a sudden, my family never had it. Yeah. And he got he got put back in, and I, and, and I got put in. Yeah, no, it's, it's entirely bizarre. Then you add in the issue with those serving in the military or the law enforcement agencies. Yeah. And yep, I understand. it's a mess. Yeah. But like I say, if the enrollment committee say I have been a- approved for the fall of 2022, I should be approved. Why have I got to go, go before the governor to be approved again if it's already approved? I don't know. It's a good question. They're only, they're only contradicting yourself, right? Yeah, you know, I wonder if some of this is also they're just willing and wanting to see if they can uh, just wait you out. Because not everyone's yeah. going to say, okay, well, I'm going willing to get back in the process and go down that road and see what becomes of it. Some people are inevitably going to say, 20 years is enough arson around with this, and I'm not doing it. And so even if they get 10% of people that just fall off uh, with their level of interest and willing to pursue it, it makes their life easy, which is just a real shame to be able to think or say that out loud because they blew it on this one. Betty, I'll, I'll tell you this right now. I'm when I start to work on something. You talked to me before, uh, stuff. I've been talking to you, and when I pursue something, I'm going to pursue it, and I'm going to go farther. And so far as I'm concerned, wh- whoever is the head of the at the chief of, of the Halibu, he, he should know who the governing council is. The same thing as the MHA, the federal member for the Bay of Islands. Yeah, the office should know who it is. Of course. Yeah, but like I say, I can't get no answers. But I'm going to lot lot better today because when I start at something, I don't give it up. Why did I go and get papers 
20 and 21 years back to prove residency for to apply again. Then I was approved. Now, now he said it would be approved in the fall. This is January. And, and, and you still can't get no answers from them. But like I said, like I just told you, I'm going to fire this because I'm going to the two MHA's office today and I'm going to find out who the governor and council is. Because so far as I'm concerned, whoever the chief is up there or, or the halibut or whatever, he should know who the governor and council is. Oh, yeah, of course they should. That should be an easy answer to find out. The easiest answer of all the questions people have yep. regarding yep. halibut status. Let me know what, what you find out, David. But... Uh, Patty, yeah. I, I what I'd like to do. If you got a fax number, I could send you send you in a copy of what I got here. I'm sure we do. I I'd never use the fax machine, but uh, I can find uh, something for you here pretty quick. I would think. Yes, I appreciate it. We must have a fax number, do we, Dave? Yes, you said, sir. Yeah, I'm going to have to put you on hold so I can find it. I'm looking at contact info. For us here, but I don't see a fax number jumping off the page at me anywhere. But I know there's okay. one there because I've used it in the past. I'll tell you what. Uh, let me put you on hold, David, while we try to find that number for you. How's that? Well, sir, thank you very much. You have a good day. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Dave, I'm oh, sorry, David. Uh, I'm looking at the contact info. I don't see the fax number. Do we still use the fax machine? No, it's gone, is it? Okay, so can you tell David if you can maybe find someone to scan some info or what have you and uh, send it off to me? You know, speaking of fax machines, it still boggles my mind that one of the most important and complicated and privacy-riddled areas of society being healthcare and still the reliance on fax machines? I mean, while we're talking about the advent of virtual care and trying to move down that technological path, And yet we're still sending faxes around with my personal information because, you know, it's a very effective tool. It's actually mind-boggling technology. But not everyone's standing alongside their fax machine listening to the beeps and the whirs and the bongs as a, a fax appears. So inevitably, it just sits there on a machine where anybody whether it be from the domestic engineer, the janitorial staff, a clerk, or whoever, can pick up your personal medical information. It just never made any sense to me. Anyway, apparently we don't use the fax machine anymore. That's how advanced we are. All right. So uh, every now and then I get an interesting note about how come I didn't talk about X, Y, or Z. And just to pepper the uh, landscape with it. So we talk about rehabilitation and some programs and uh, counseling, whether it be for mental health or addictions, especially when we have you as a quote-unquote captive audience, and that would be inside a penitentiary, which are, of course, I will never get sick of saying this. The two most expensive things in Canada is a night in the clink or a night in the hospital. With the shortage of staff at Her Majesty's Penitentiary, and it's not just the shortage of staff in that facility, the prisoners, the inmates, have negotiated because of the absence of the programs they need, some of them to qualify for parole, but just basic education programs, addiction counseling, uh, and, the, what, and the like. Because of the staffing shortage, they've now successfully negotiated some gaming consoles, like a PlayStation. The number of emails I got on that are pretty extraordinary. If you want to take it on, we can do it. Also, apparently people know that I'm a fan of the titanium warfare. I watch a bit of darts. In fact, I think the fans produced sports or games on television are darts. The fans in the Alley Pally are unbelievable. So I've talked about one of the greatest non-dart finishes and the best commentary in the world of darts came from a fellow they called Over the Top, Dean Wynn Stanley, and a non-dart finish against Vincent Van Der Voort. 
The most recent classic, apparently between Michael Van Gogh and longtime world number one, and Bully Boy Michael Smith. They were both on an iron darter. Both on an iron darter. Came down to Van Gogh and missing his shot at double 12 to complete the nine darter. So he misses, and Bully Boy Smith comes right behind him and completes his nine darter. Nine darter. The best leg of all time. Sorry I didn't bring it up till now. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Doc, you're on the air. How are you, Petty? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. How about you? How are you doing? Very good, boy. Very good, I must say. I had a good Christmas and uh, so far, a pretty good New Year. So let's hope that it continues through 2023 for uh, for all of us here in Newfoundland, Labrador. Absolutely. You know, I may be in the minority, but... I feel a lot of reasons to be bullish on the future in the province. I really do. I think there's a lot of things if we look at it. You know, it's easy to be down in the mouth about government. And I look, I complain and criticize government as much as anybody. But there are big opportunities in the art sector, in the tech sector, in the tourism sector, the energy sector, the move that the province has made and the country's made on critical minerals. You know, the potential for a business sanction out of Bay Nord. You know, there's just a lot of things going on where... You know, we, I don't know if we're going to see them all come to pass, whether it be Green Hydrogen or Stephenville Airport or anything else I just mentioned. But there's lots of little areas out there where growth is right there in front of us, tech and mining in particular. No doubt about it. We have uh, more resources, I think, in this province than any other part of Canada. And if we use them properly and get the benefit of them to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, then this generation and generations to come will have a bright future. And, you know, that's the whole idea. That's why I'm involved in a whole lot of different issues, because I want for this province to be a place where my children and my grandchildren can stay, make a living, have a good life, raise families, and life goes on. So that there will be generations of O'Keefe's from for years to come. Now, I suppose that's a good thing. You never know. I'll tell you now what I have on my mind this morning. I listened with sadness, not surprise, and a whole lot of chagrin to the lady yesterday who called you from Ship Harbor and about the, the church in Ship Harbor. Yep. And the anguish and the anger and the disappointment with the church, with the Catholic Church, uh, in her particular area. And she's not unique, you know. I think she reflects how an awful lot of Catholics feel in in the Archdiocese uh, at present. And, you know, in some cases it's related to families who donated property to the church over the years and now that property all of a sudden is being sold uh, from underneath their family as well as from underneath the Catholic population generally. I get calls from other people who have plaques and other symbols of their family that they donated to various churches and they have no idea of how to get them or whether or not they'll be destroyed if the church is hauled down. Uh, I still look at the the statue of Christ the King in front of Corpus Christi Church. Uh, Jack hammered. Nobody is able to find out where it is or what happened to it. And, you know, it was put there by the John Cody family way back in 1926. And then Bishop Hunt 
has a ja- I assume he had a jackhammer then moved somewhere and nobody can find out where it is I just wonder when the Cody's drive by how they feel fair enough and uh, we've asked that question I don't have an answer as of yet either these what struck me most with the conversation with that lady from Ship Harbour was not just how disappointed or fraught or furious that she was but you could tell her family relationship to the church she's obviously a devout catholic and at the end of the conversation or thereabouts she said if something happens i'm never going back and for people who are devout and very pious and staunch that doesn't come out of their mouth until you hear from that lady so the bubbling over the frustration has led to I'm never going back imagine of all the things that have happened over the course of her lifetime inside the church and this is the straw that broke the camel's back I'm not mocking it at all in fact I feel terrible for her my father was a very pious man and if he was alive today to see this unfold I'm sure he'd be as furious and in conjunction with as uh, sad as that lady was Doc did we lose Doctor Robson? Yeah, let's see if we can get him back. But yeah. oh, he is there. Me? Oh, I got you now. Yeah, I haven't touched okay. anything. I don't know what happened. What Bishop Hunt, Peter Hunt has done is literally ripped the soul out of the Catholic community in the Archdiocese. I mean, there are people who don't know where to go for mass, don't know where to go for a priest. Uh, it, everything now is in a state of disorganization and uh, it's just a feeling people generally feel like that lady felt yesterday from from, uh, Ship Harbour and you know, some of it is related to property issues, like there's there's a property issue with that land out there in Ship Harbour. I'm told that before all this is settled, there are other property issues. For instance, I'm told that, and I don't know if this is so or not, but the rumour is that with Corpus Christi, there's an issue there with uh, ownership of land, that the church, the Episcopal Corporation, doesn't really have clear title to the land. Now, whether that's so or where it might stand right now or the implications, I don't know. But I think it comes down to one thing now, that it's time for the Catholic population of the Archdiocese to take some kind of action. And the only action I can think is for the, the Catholic population to take out a class action suit against the Episcopal Corporation. And I have it on fairly good judicial opinion that such a class action suit could very well succeed. And uh, there are a whole lot of reasons to, to justify that kind of an action from mismanagement, dereliction of duty, uh, illegal sale of, of properties from under the feet of people, the sale of properties for which the church has no real ownership. Uh, I mean, you can delve into a good legal firm should be able to take what's happening here now and and research that and into a class action suit. And from what I can gather, you don't need like a thousand names. You don't need 20 names to actually take out the suit against the church. All you need is uh, to take it out. Whether or not it succeeds and to what extent will then depend and whether or not it can be classified as a class action suit so then depends on how many people you have 
as a part of that suit. Yeah, I mean, the class, once it gets certified, people can be added to the class. It's yeah. just a procedure. I wonder, is the, have the horses left that particular barn? And I'm not a lawyer. You see, you got some advice from a lawyer. But, of course, this case and who's on the hook for compensation has made its way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Some of the deals have been closed. Some of the property rights have been transferred in full. So I wonder if there's any recourse that will actually see any change as opposed to a, 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 me, a, a formal complaint simply being recognized or, or lodged or filed because it really seems like we're so far down that road that the 11th hour is a wink away. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, again, I've been told recently that this is going to take quite a while before all of the little knots and all of the little uh, ties that are involved here are are kind of smoothed out and put together and they reach a a conclusion to the whole issue. And I I think a, a class action suit... Uh, would be a, a way for people in the parry, in the archdiocese, people who are suffering emotional distress, people who are suffering religious distress, people who are uh, who see the church doing things that they don't agree with in terms of selling off properties and family keepsakes and, uh, as I say, plaques and other things that were given to the church in honor of family members over the years, all of which had disappeared into this quagmire where, like, if you wanted to get something out today of St. Pius Church, I don't know who I could refer you to except the bishop, and the bishop didn't take any calls, I can guarantee you. Yeah, the Association for New Canadians, I I understand. But that particular church, there's actually, you mentioned plaques, and very quickly because I'm late for the news, there's actually a plaque in St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican referring to this province. Is there? Yeah, which is pretty wild. Uh, anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. Well, I guess it's not because the Vatican should be responsible for the vast majority of all these compensary, con- compensatory issues that we're dealing with. Uh, Doc, I'm off to the news, yeah. but I appreciate the time. Well, I'd like it. I just say, Patty, I would. I'd really like for a legal term to uh, take a look at this and decide whether or not they'd like to take on a class action suit. And anybody interested in being a part of it, if we go down that road, uh, to keep in touch with me, and we'll see where we go with it. Thanks for the call, Dave, uh, Doc. Thanks, bye. All take the care. Best. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Russ wants to talk about Air Canada, and as I mentioned off the top of the show, the West Coast Senior Hockey Circuit is getting back on track this weekend. The puck drop, where, when, we'll find out with one of the guys, one of the horsepower behind the West Coast Senior Hockey League. And plug your ears, Darren, one of the finest athletes the province has ever produced. Darren Colburn's in the queue. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's talk a little West Coast Senior Hockey with our guest online number four. That's Darren Colburn, D.C. You're on the air. Patty, thanks for having me. Uh, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. The very same to you and your family, Darren. Thanks for making time for the program this morning. So there's been some fits and starts to get West Coast Senior Hockey back on track, but it looks like you've done exactly that for this coming weekend. Before we get to the where the wins for puck drop, you know, give the folks some idea what's involved in this stuff, because it's not as simple as just calling the boys in Deer Lake or Porto Basque or Cornerbrook or Stephenville and say, do you want to play hockey? Because at the senior level, players are working, they're family men and they don't necessarily feel the need, uh, possibly, to get in there, strap it up, and play for keeps. So what's involved? 
Patty, you've been involved in the East Coast uh, setup for quite some time, and you've been on an executive uh, level as well. So you know exactly how much it uh, takes to get something like this going. And kudos to the guys out here from the three teams and, uh, uh, you know, the executive of the league. Um, but the thing was, COVID knocked it down completely. We, were, The Royals were supposed to play Deer Lake two years ago for the finals, and it got cut short by uh, COVID. So uh, we didn't have quite the setup that uh, the East Coast League, we've always been on again, off again out here, unfortunately. Uh, it's it's all relative to the numbers. So, uh, like I said, kudos to these guys that, that got it going. We, we kind of got uh, – everybody wanted to get something going in August or September, but, uh, you know – it takes a lot of work. You've got to get all three teams, possibly four teams. We tried to get Stephenville involved, not there this year, but hopefully with the excitement and the setup that it's going to have uh, coming in the new year here, hopefully we can get four teams on board or even five for next year. So the interest is there. And we, like I said, we'll, uh, we'll discuss what's upcoming, but uh, it, it's looking very positive right now. The last time the league was up and running, it got off to an extremely positive start. Big crowds in every barn. People were excited to have senior back. But, of course, it requires that amount of trust in each other as teams and management and volunteers to ensure that there's a level playing field. Because the haves and the have-nots were the ruination of senior hockey, and they always have been. How difficult is that to approach? Because you don't want to be accusing people of being willing or wanting to derail the league. But at some point, sometimes, the general managers are, for instance, all of a sudden, they go from let's get a game on the ice to I'm Glenn Sather. So how tricky is it to navigate that? Because before long, that can be the ruination of something good. Yeah, again, that's that's something that we'll have to, uh, I guess, police on our own. The accountability is, is to each team. So, uh, again, Cornerbrook, we want guys, players from this area and uh, who are interested in playing with Cornerbrook Royals. Uh, the same should be for Deer Lake. The same should be for Port of Basque, who are the three teams that are involved. So, uh, Port of Basque did have the hardest uh, issue getting players to play out there just because it's a smaller community and they're not uh, as close to uh, the hub as we are. So, uh, they do have a good team set up. Uh, I think three teams are going to be uh, – there's going to be some parity. So, uh, then it comes down to, you know, uh, how accountable are the actual teams moving forward with respect to how important is winning, how important is keeping the league going. So I think the, with with a little bit of the East Coast or a lot more of the East Coast uh, mindset, we need to say the league is more important here. Yes, there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers, but it's just exciting to get hockey back on the ice here in all three of these communities. Any imports? None no such thing anymore uh and that's a that's a first uh step to say it's local players and uh, there was uh, a protected list for each team uh 12 players plus two goalies then there was a draft held uh, a month ago or a month and a half ago there will be another draft upcoming this week uh on sunday or monday and uh, there will be another influx of players into the league. Uh, so what it, what it looks like now, there's going to be another healthy draft coming up in the next uh, three or four days due to the excitement that's been created over just, just the start of the season. So uh, players are wanting to play. <clears throat> they're not coming from outside the province, and they're not coming from outside of your catchment area. Have a relationship with any junior leagues and or major midget because those guys can indeed step in. They've been playing at a high level. They've been on the ice all season so far, and they're ready to roll. Do you have any relationship struck with those two entities? Uh, the relationship, uh, actually, Patty, here in Cornerbrook and in Deer Lake and in Port of Basque is there are several 
recent, and I mean recent as in last year, graduates of the AAA League uh, here in Newfoundland, most of them from the West Coast. We've got at least four on our team. I know there's two or three up in Deer Lake, and there's two or three in Port of Basque. So with respect to a relationship feeder system, ideally that's what you want. You want your kids that come through the system here that if they, they don't end up having a career going on to the mainland or college or whatever else, they have somewhere to play. So, again, that's what we have. We have a good feeder system in that group. There are several uh, junior players that have come from St. John's that are living and working out here, as you uh, referenced, uh, are now have a career out here. So they'd like to continue to play hockey. So that feeder system even comes from the East Coast for, uh, for gentlemen that come out here. I mean, we're happy to have you on spread the good word about West Coast Senior Hockey being back in action this weekend. What else do you need to do to ensure? Because some people might be caught off guard. They're hockey fans, but maybe have been, you know, busy throughout the holidays or weren't aware of the drafts. What else is the league doing? And what's your role in the league before we go any further? Again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit selfish with respect to this because I miss it. And uh, I'm coaching the, the Royals. Uh, but I have been, I've had a, a fair amount to do with getting this moving again because uh, there's been interest amongst the players who started saying, you know what, I think there's enough numbers out here to do this. It now, we now need the executives to get involved. And that's what they did. So the executives got involved and they, they spearheaded this. So, again, thank you to them for getting this moving. And a lot of work had to be done to get this started for this weekend, not just for players and, and registrations, and but, but talk about, uh, you know, rink uh, ice times that had to be filled in order to make this schedule work smoothly. So uh, these are things that had to be put to bed before we can even announce a schedule. So there's a full 12-game uh, schedule, six home, six away for the three teams, then playoffs, and then uh, whatever happens after that, whether there's an opportunity to play in a herder setup, that's up to uh, uh, Hockey NL. So, uh, But no, it's, it's like I said, it's just exciting for fans especially. And a lot of this, thank you for having me on, to let people know that that's why we're here is uh, today is to announce that the league is starting on Friday in Port of Basque versus the Royals at uh, 8.30. And on Saturday, uh, Deer Lake will be in Cornerbrook uh, to kick off their home opener. How important is it to figure out a pathway, and it won't be this year, but somewhere down the line for the West Coast winners to be get, to get involved in the Herder Playdowns and the Herder Championship? Because when the Avalon East was out, that carrot wasn't there, and it was an important carrot. So getting back in, you know, to be able to play with the Clarenvilles and Ganders and Grand Falls of the world, it made a big difference for player recruitment and interest in senior around here. What does the pathway look like on the way back to the Herder? Because you're right, it's up to H&L, and they're sanctioning body in the senior committee. But how do you create a map for them to consider and for players to consider? Because there's nothing quite like playing for the herder. Again, I've, I've been through it, and you've, you've seen it or been involved in it, Patty. There, you're right. Uh, you, you walk into either Mile One or uh, the, the Civic Center here in Cornerbrook to a full house. Uh, something about the brand of senior hockey in Newfoundland once it gets to that level, uh, the herder. Uh, so, again, yes, it's up to H&L, uh, and, and they have to decide uh, what kind of setup uh, the local league will need here to compete with the uh, the East Coast League, which is, uh, you know, uh, again, it's amazing how they just keep it going year after year after year. It's because of commitment, and there's no there's no speak of imports. There's no speak of money being handed back and forth. So that's the important thing uh, with, with the East Coast League is that they have a steady group that runs that league, and they have a firm commitment to the players and the fans out there that they want to have a, a, a league every year. Yes, some teams drop in and drop off, but uh, our goal now 
now is to keep this going uh, from here on out and to make sure that we're on top of it. That's the key. Hopefully no more, uh, uh, you know, setbacks with respect to COVID or pandemics, that type of thing. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's uh, where we want to be right now, playing as a three-team league, not ideal. Four would be great. But, uh, you know, let's, let's see if, uh, if we do get enough games in this year, are HNL willing to uh, allow a West Coast team to, to vie for the herder? Uh, you know, it's something out there. Yeah, I believe the first uh, live television broadcast of the Herder Championships was in Cornerbrook at the Civic Center, myself and you and the others uh, working for Rogers. Who was in that? Was that Deer Lake in the Shore? Can you remember? Uh, it was it was actually Deer Lake and the Seabees. Deer Lake and the Seabees. Uh, so, okay, yeah, yeah. So uh, again, incredible atmosphere in both in both uh, in both venues. But uh, like I said, there's nothing like it. And again, Patty, we're looking at uh, walking into Fort Basque on Friday night, and that place will be full before we even get there off the bus. So uh, that's that's the kind of atmosphere you're looking at, and I'm I'm expecting anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 here in Cornerbrook on uh, on Saturday night versus Deer Lake. Okay, so you're in Port Bass Friday night. What time is puck drop in both towns? Well, it's 8:30 on uh, Friday night in Port Basque. Uh, they're saying 8 o'clock. Usually it gets to 8:30 with all the festivities and all that uh, welcoming it back. And it's a 7:30 start here Saturday night. Uh, Cornerbrook and Deer Lake being a home opener to probably start 10 or 15 minutes late, but. Uh, everybody I've talked to around town are very excited that this is back and this will just push it a little further for people that weren't aware uh, and even looking in the weekends to come to, to look on your, uh, your 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 Facebook pages, whether it's Deer Lake, Cornerbrook or Port Basque and say, this is the schedule coming up. There's uh, two games every weekend. It's only Friday and Saturdays, no Sunday games. Uh, West Coast setup is usually much more successful on Fridays and Saturdays. And, uh, again, I, I don't see it being any different. Are all the teams playing with, with their legendary monikers of the Royals, the Red Wings, and the Mariners? You got it. I love it. That's, that's, that's the brand. And, and, again, these are these are historical names and teams that are, you know, have come since uh, – for Cornerbrook is in 1935 was their, was their first uh, season. The Mariners have won the Hardy Cup, the Herder. Uh, you know, the Red Wings have won the Herder and, and they've been a contender. And the rivalries, all three rivalries are incredible. And it's it's electric when you walk in either building. Well, congratulations to all involved, uh, all the organizers and the managers, volunteers of the different teams, and, of course, the players. Good luck with this edition of the West Coast Senior Hockey League. And you mentioned the legendary Royals. We used to love to see the Blue Bus come. And then, unfortunately for the Royals, they leave on the bus. You and Clyde stay behind so we move on to the next tourney. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I appreciate it, Patty. No, again, these are memories that, like I said, as growing up as a kid, either seeing games at Humber Gardens or or at the uh, the old stadium in St. John's. It just it just throws you back to, you know, uh, being a kid and smells and sounds of as soon as you walk into the arena. But uh, some great memories for sure. Good to have you on, Darren. Good luck. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Aaron Colburn. He's head coach of the Cornerbrook Royals. This weekend, kicking off in Port of Basque on Friday night in Cornerbrook, Saturday night, the West Coast Senior Hockey League. Okay, let's take a break for the, uh, this uh, this break. Pardon me. When we go back, Ross is there patiently in the queue to talk about our Canada. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Ross, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Okay. Happy okay. New Year. I'm fine. Um, I'm calling about a couple things. Uh two experiences, one with WestJet and one with uh, Air Canada. Okay. Plus, I wanted to ask a question about that, and then I wanted to talk about tribunals for those who can't afford lawyers to go to court. 
Okay. I worked in a, I worked in a tribunal for 10 years in uh, Edmonton. I'm from Yellowknife originally. My wife and uh, stepsons are from Carbonier. And we li- uh, my wife and I live in Hans Harbor. But uh, when we moved down, uh, my stepson took WestJet. When he got to uh, Carbonier, he noticed that his computer that he had with him and his luggage was gutted. And it was about $5,000 worth of uh, whatever it is, electronics. I'm not a computer guy. but <clears throat> So he tried to get a hold of Air Canada, or sorry, WestJet, never got a response back, and it's been months. I, myself, and a friend uh, had a bunch of lobster. We vacuum-packed. We had scallops in there, and we had a bunch of cod, and we sent it up to Yellowknife and we traveled up well it showed up six days later and this is a packing box from uh, Winterton you know the fish plant so uh, it showed up six days later of course it was no good and it had uh, you know uh, seafood written on it and and so we tried to get a hold of Air Canada blah 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 nothing same thing months so I was wondering, I haven't had a chance to read the legislation or regulations of the tribunal that you're talking about, but I was wondering just off the top of your head, if you knew if uh, there's any clause in there where the airline has to respond by a certain time at all. Uh, I was wondering, that was my question, but then I'll talk about tribunals. Okay, so are you referring to the Canadian Transportation Agency, which is a quasi-judicial tribunal? Okay, so what's the specific question about them? Sorry? Well, the question I had was, uh, do the airlines have a certain time that they have to provide a response to to, uh, uh, appellants? Uh, Not that I know of, but what I do know is that the backlog uh, includes some 30,000 complaints. Some people are taking up to 18 months for their complaint to be finally evaluated or adjudicated. So it doesn't include anything about deadlines for airlines to respond to a complainant. The one thing that I did see inside some of these news stories is that people are deciding, you know what, I'm not waiting 12 months, I'm not waiting 18 months, I'm going straight to small claims court, and consequently... As soon as their complaint is filed with the small claims court, people are getting out of court settlements within days. Okay. Well, I I know about uh, uh, tribunals, but I'm not too sure about small claims court. Now, do they go by themselves, or do they are they represented by lawyers in most cases? You don't need a lawyer to uh, go to a small claims court, so I, I don't okay. know if there's a one size fits all answer to that. Okay. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's a great option. And I, I just wanted to talk uh, for a minute about tribunals, just so people, because tri- quasi-judicial sounds pretty scary and tribunal sounds scary, but you definitely do not need a lawyer for that. If you can afford to wait, and I was going to say can't afford a lawyer, um, all like the tribunal that I work for, you send in a written submission that could be uh through email or whatever but what i always recommend because for 10 years i worked at the tribunal plus i also wrote decisions on uh, hiring appeals for the government in northwest territories and what i found was a lot of the appeals people had written in but they didn't check the legislation first to make sure that they had a, a proper appeal and so uh, when you write a decision, you uh, you write it more of an explanation, and you, so it's not like 
win and loss comes out and they go, oh, yeah, you just work for the government kind of thing, that attitude. But I don't want people to be fearful of tribunals because, it, uh, you know, they just read the submission. And uh, if there's an appeal, they'll have an appeal. And you can you can represent yourself easily because all you're doing is telling the facts and providing evidence that you have. It's a really painless except for the weight, apparently. So well, I just I, wanted people to know it's not a... And small claims court would be the same thing, then it sounds like just people shouldn't be fearful because it's a it's not a bad process. No, a small claims court is actually fairly fundamental. Uh, I do have an answer to your question about timeline for air, for the airlines to respond to your claim. Uh, this gentleman here is dealing with WestJet at this very moment. Uh, the airline has 30 days to respond to your claim, which is helpful information. I appreciate the gentleman sending it along. Yeah. But, of course... Let's just say you file a complaint with the Canadian Transportation Agency. They right. then put your claim onto the airlines. They respond within 30 days. It still just sits on someone's desk until they can actually do the evaluation and you know adjudicate where compensation lies or does not. So that's where the complication comes with the backlog of 30,000 people at CTA versus every story I read about it and uh, small claims court being the option. They never even made it to court. There was not a court settlement. People were done with it. Okay. Now, my question again, then, so you're saying they have to wait 30 days for a response to the tribunal, or if I send them a letter saying, I, you know, this, I had damaged goods, do they have to respond to me in 30 days as well? Or? I don't imagine they have the same obligation to the individual. Uh, they can really dog that one for a while. But once you go yeah. through an official agency like CTA, apparently that's where the 30 days uh, comes in? Okay. Okay. And uh, you know, like I say, don't be fearful of either one, a small claims court, because you're small claims court, you talk to a judge and all he's going to do is listen to your story and make a decision. And it, we know everybody knows who's making a complaint that they have a valid complaint, you know, usually lost luggage, uh, not, you know, being refunded for uh, airline mess ups and stuff like that but yeah i just thought i'd ask that question because uh uh, uh well a couple of questions you know because they, to me they should be responding and in a small claims court you go there and, and say well they didn't didn't respond to me at all i'd be surprised if they're they're even in a court they probably wouldn't even go they'd just write them off or like you say, pay pay people right away. It's easier for them, right? If they know that they can wait you out at CTA, but they can't yeah. at small claims court, it's just easier most times, especially when they know the evidence just like you know the evidence. If the if the deadline, or pardon me, the flight cancellation or what have you was not due to mechanical or weather, but was fur fully in their purview, you've got the booking dates, you've got the reference numbers, you have all the evidence of flights that have been cancelled, it's just easy enough for WestJet to say, all right, well, Russ can go away, here's his check for 1200 bucks. bye-bye. Whatever, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so... You know, a lot of times I've been on flights where they're canceled or delayed and they say it's mechanical. And then you hear from a worker on the side saying, well, we didn't have enough people working. How do they prove that it's mechanical or not? You know, like, should they have to, uh, you know? They do. Of course that? they do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No doubt. All right. I think that's uh, about all I have to say, but I, thanks very much for letting me on, and hopefully we can get something done on these two cases. Appreciate the time this morning, Ross. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye.
Right. Yeah, I mean, just imagine how many thousands of people are dealing with airlines right now. Well, just official complaints, 30,000. And you know that doesn't grab the entirety of the traveling community that's frustrated and thinks they're due compensation. Some people just throw their arms in the air and say, eh. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, like yesterday we spoke with Dave uh, Callahan. He's a fisherman and businessman on the west coast of the province. He's one of the candidates, and he has been approved uh, to run for the vacant president's position at the FFAW against Greg Pretty, who's a, a member of the executive at the FFAW. Another fellow who put his name or his hat in the ring, Jason Sullivan. His nomination has been rejected. Mr. Sullivan calls it a dark day or in history or democracy. Pardon me. We're here from Jason Sullivan right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Jason Sullivan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, I think. I'm getting over this sore throat, flu, bug, whatever it is I'm still dealing with, but I'm all right, I suppose. How about yourself? I'm not too bad. Even a little bit of a bug myself, but uh, that's it. you got to push through it. Yeah, I mean, that's all you can do. So I don't know if I should say I'm surprised or not, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> so your nomination has been rejected by the FFAW to run for the vacancy that is the president of the union. What did they tell you? Um, well, yesterday afternoon, uh, probably three thirty, four o'clock, uh, I just uh, maybe it's wrote here, yeah, uh, they sent me an email saying, well, I got an email from Greg Pretty's ex-wife, actually, who's the chair of the election committee. Um, conflict of interest no, knows no bounds at the FFAW. But I got an email from her saying that the, the, the committee unanimously rejected my nomination for this position because if you uh, go on Cato and under Fish NL, um, I'm still listed as a director, even though the organization is not in good standing. And it's, you know, it's been dissolved since 2019, I think, a little over three years. So, uh, so because of that, and because my recent affiliation as president of CNL, um, while it's an organisation that says it currently does not seek to represent harvesters, it may do so in the future. So, I don't really know how that's relevant because who knows what could happen in the future. Um, anyway, there are basically the two, uh, the two shady reasons why they uh, why they disqualified me, and you know I'm so. I'm a little bit upset. I'll tell you why. I, I knew they were going to try to do this. You know, it's the FFAW. Everyone's used to this kind of this kind of dirty work, right? Um, but I did spend a lot of time, Carlin, Carlin, the uh, their 60 inshore council. I spent a lot of time before Christmas and that Carlin, those people, and listening to them. And, and uh, the response was pretty good, actually. I only got one hard no. But uh, anyways, uh, still figured it was a long shot to win, but... The point being, as I spent a lot of time before Christmas when I could have been spending with my kids and, and wife and uh, dealing with this, and uh, you know, they did, you know, time for them, you know, to, to exercise some common decency. I mean, they knew I aligned or going to try to disqualify me somehow. And um, why didn't they do it in the beginning? Why, not, why at the eleventh hour when you, you know, the, the elections tomorrow? I could file an injunction, stop the election, and. Ah, that. But you're you're opening yourself up to some liability there. Then, if uh, if it was rejected, they could come after me for the cost of bringing those sixty people in St. John's and all that stuff. So, yeah, I was going to say. So, at the eleventh hour, you're really limited in options here. So, a court injunction is a risky business. There is, as far as I understand, no easy formal. Uh, uh, 
no formal complaint option here for an appeal inside the union itself because if uh, this is my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is once they've made a decision, it's final. They don't even have an appeal process in place, do they? No, no, that's, and that's part of the problem with the union in general. Like, like I'm councillor on Bayboulders, right? So, you know, if we were having an election and one of the, nominee, you know, one of the candidates, ex-wife was chairing the the, uh, the election committee, someone will call municipal affairs and this is all get this will get straightened out. Like this can't happen as a conflict. But with the with the union, you they can just do what they want and there's no really there's no recourse. Who do you call? The Lana Payne who's, you know, attached at the hip. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you know, therein lies the problem, a lot of it with the FFAW, and this is why nobody trusts them. Like, you know, this was a good opportunity to build back some trust within and make people proud, be part of the union again. But but in order to do that, you got to stop doing this, this crazy stuff that, you know, is a, you know, you know, people are just losing confidence and they can't gain it back. They know they're, they're there for all the wrong reasons. You know, if, if the people, want, whoever the people want to elect, that's up to the people. It shouldn't be two or three people pulling pulling the puppet strings and making all this happen behind behind the scenes. So where to from here? Because it's one thing, and you know, you had a couple of car drives with Fish NL and the role that you left at CNL, and I see they have an interesting post out there this morning. So what's next? Is it at some point you throw your hands in the air, say enough is enough, or what legitimately down the road do you see for your voice inside the fishery? Because it doesn't look like it's going to be inside the union. And look, I mean, I don't have any skin in the game, but I've long said I don't quite understand how they're even able to uh, not allow people who sign a Fish and L card to vote where they actually pay dues because Fish and L was just a concept. It was a thought. It was something that was being worked towards, not anything that was quote-unquote real. So what's next? Well, for me, like, Patty, I had no ambitions to be, like, three months ago to be president of the FFAW. And uh, when the president resigned... You know, everyone was kind of caught in shock. And then, you know, an hour later, they, they, they anointed Greg Pretty to be the next uh, next savior. But then and there, I knew, you know, there's an opportunity here now to, to, to bring change and do the right thing. And I know he's not the guy to do it. He's he's there since 79. It's going to be the same old, same old. And we're going down a hard road here now with market conditions and even just the way the industry is going in general. Um, we're kind of a one-trick pony, but, but, you know, without crab, I mean, we'd be we'd be decimated. And uh, for the most part, it lobster is on the West Coast. But, um, you know, so if we don't adapt and change, it will, we're going to be left behind pretty quick. And if you look at the trajectory of the fishery the last 15 years, it's going that way. But, you know, this was an opportunity to try to change stuff. For me, my, like, I'll just, you know put my nose to the ground again and, and, and keep working hard and, and, and trying to work your way through it with what you're, with what you're given. But, um, you know, um, for me, I am i don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm vocal. I, when something is wrong, I, I don't like, I don't like being wrong. And uh, in general, that's why I guess I started to speak out in the beginning. And, and, uh, if I didn't put my name in, I'm just as bad as everyone else. Someone had, they had to have an option. And uh, I tried to give everyone an option. It seems like a lot of the inshore council are pissed off about this is the way this is going, even even anointing Greg the next president. I mean, uh, without consulting with the 50 or 60 people that they have to represent everyone, they just went ahead and did it without, without asking anyone. And uh, so a lot of people are a little bit uh, annoyed by that. And uh, I think, you know what, I didn't think I had a big chance of winning, but 
uh, after talking to a lot of people, I think there was a decent chance, you know, and uh, I guess the FFAW realised that as well. But I wasn't going in there to tear that down. I was going in there to try to fix it and try to change and, and make positive change. And unfortunately, it uh, doesn't seem like that's going to get an opportunity to even, uh, even uh, go to an election. But if tomorrow at the election, at one thirty in the afternoon at the airport in Comfort Inn, they need 18 fishermen to show up. And if, see, it, the Inshore Council has broken the two sides, the, the IRO, the, the industrial retail and the fishery side. If they don't get 18 there, they don't have a quorum. So... What I told people last night on my podcast is that, listen, these inshore council people are there to represent the, the entire membership. It shouldn't be two or three puppet masters in the back pulling strings. They're there. they got to they gotta grow a set of whatever you're carrying and do the right thing and get up and walk out. That's it. If you don't agree with the way this is being handled or the way the way the union in general is being run, get up and walk out. Because if not, you're just as bad as the rest of them. You're sitting down and, and, and taking it. And... Uh, you know what? If they don't show up, I don't know what'll happen then. I mean, if they don't got a, a form, they'll have to try to reschedule or something. And uh, and <laughs> as we speak, I'm sure the FFAW are out in the back room now trying to rejig the constitution some way to to uh, to change that. But um, anyway, that's the only, right now. I, I believe that's the only option because I don't have a lot of interest in going to court uh, against the FFAW because it's against Unifor, obviously, and has millions and millions and millions of dollars. So. Um, you know, but just hoping that the inshore council will do the right thing, get up, walk out of the room, and say this is this is nonsense. We, you know, this is 2023 now. It's not it's not 1930 in in North Korea. Um, so um, we'll see what happens tomorrow. We'll see. I appreciate the time this morning, Jason. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Uh, Jason Sullivan. Nomination to be the next president of the FFAW, rejected by the union. And, of course, they say really quite clearly, and not much beyond, well, as far as I can tell, of course, I'm not privy to the communication directly between Mr. Sullivan and the FFAW, but basically because he continues to serve as a director of Fish L, an active company. Fish L never really was a company, never was organized labor, never got certified. And, of course, there was all kinds of stuff that went on during that, wasn't there? You know? Just imagine, one of the conversations inside all of that was trying to figure out what was the actual definition of a fish harvester. Remember that? I mean, that's as bare bones as it got down to. An actual definition of what constitutes a fish harvester. You know, some people, and I don't think they're wrong to say, if you participated in and got paid from the fishery, uh, whether it be uh, in the inshore or otherwise, uh, why that doesn't make you an, uh, an, uh, pardon me, an active fish harvester is a strange argument to make. Now, I know the FAW made it, but I still don't quite get it. So it went from whether it be 10,000 to, I can't remember what the final number was, like 4,500 or something, if I remember correctly. But there's a big gap between 4,500, if those are the round numbers. And 10,000. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Today's a good day to get on the program. The topic, totally up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM. And, oh, I'm not supposed to do this, but uh, Darren Colburn, head coach of the Royals, involved the West Coast Senior Hockey League. He'd like to give someone a pair of tickets to go see the game uh, Saturday night in Cornerbrook at the Civic Center. So if you call us, but here's the trick you got to come on and share a senior hockey memory. That's the 
that's the way it's going to have to be. So if you want to go to the game of Cornerbrook Saturday night, uh, if you're the first person to call who wants to share a hockey memory, senior hockey in particular, with us here live on the program, for the benefit of our listeners, we'll give your name to Mr. Colburn, and the tickets will be waiting for you Saturday night at the Civic Center in Cornerbrook. All right, let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, it hasn't been really very wintry. It's been some cool conditions, but certainly no snow in this part of the province. But, of course, it's cold enough to need the furnace cranked up. And what we saw overnight, you know, normally the intervention of the PUB would take place on a Wednesday and the numbers would be revealed Thursday morning. But yesterday, inside their interruption formula, the price of furnace oil up about seven and a half cents right across the province. It's getting pretty dear. The conversation, I think, legitimately goes down the path of whether or not tax applied to the necessities of life, like heating your home, is the right or the wrong thing to do. Then you further take that conversation down the path of we once had our own standalone bilateral agreement with the federal government regarding uh, price on pollution, a carbon tax. Here in this province, it was applied uh, to diesel fuel and to gasoline, but not to home heating fuels. Now, the arguments... Oh, I got the cough going. The arguments are, I think, important. The province has said they're disappointed in the fact that the federal uh, scheme is coming to this province, and it will include carbon tax being applied to furnace oil stove oils, which is a massive issue for a lot of folks listening to this program, even if you're not tuned in at this very moment. But there's the update on furnace oil. And curiously, uh, you know, I mean what I say. If I misspeak or I say something that's egregious or absolutely incorrect, I'm happy to correct myself when I'm told that I'm wrong and proven to be wrong. This one is a matter of opinion. It's about $10 a day for daycare. And I said that I think it's a good idea, and I do. I continue to think that affordable, accessible daycare is a really good idea. I went on to say it's not like I'm promoting because I have a couple of little tykes at home and I'd like to cut my daycare bill, because I don't. My boys are in their 20s. So I don't have any personal involvement, direct involvement. Uh, just to be told that, well, some of my family have little kids, and so it's good for them. <laughs> I don't think I'm making an argument on behalf of my sister and brother-in-law who are professionals who don't really have that big a concern inside of their world, so it's not that at all. Here's why I think, and it's been well documented in other parts of the country, as to why it's a good idea. Number one, the death rate doubles the birth rate in this province, and that's a problem, right? It's, it's unsustainable. Secondly, when you think about uh, immigration being the place we lean for increasing the population, and, you know, the, some of the comments you hear about, you know, take care of our own first, all that kind of stuff. For families that are making a decision whether or not to have their first child or their second or their third, there's a big, long checklist. And some of that includes daycare and the cost of. So that's another one. Then it's the well-documented and understood economics of people being able to get back into the workforce and to further their career after they've had an opportunity to stay at home if they're able to take care, advantage of maternity or paternity leave. So that's part of it. So there's all those economic factors that are associated with it. Plus, if we're just simply talking about population, it's not only growth inside the boundaries of the province, it's whether or not people are willing and wanting to move out of the province. So let's say I'm a young family of one. We're thinking about having our second. So there'd be a big long list, right? Uh, job opportunities, level of taxation, uh, access to amenities, proximity to family, cost of daycare is absolutely on that list. If we didn't participate in a program like that, then we're starting to remove some of the ticks that we could be given young families and a will and a want to stay. So I think the complicating factors with daycare at, at $10 a day is access. 
the difference between regulated and non-regulated in home in a big how call it an institution so i still think a ten dollars a day daycare is absolutely important add into it the required training and proper pay for early childhood educators again don't take it from me take it from the actual academic literature about how much your brain is developed by the age of five and the importance of pre-kindergarten, good early childhood education intervention, and what it means for their long-term success in the school system. It's out there for all to see. So again, I don't have any children that need daycare at this moment in time. It won't be long before they're taking care of me. But uh, you want to talk about that issue, we can do it. But let's go to line number one. Good morning, Blanche. You're on the air. Good morning. Morning How to you. I'm very well, thanks. How you doing? Good. Happy New Year to you and your staff. Well, the very same to you, Blanche. And uh, you added, want someone to call in this morning with a few memories, I guess, of the days of senior hockey. Let's do it. Well, this is the Chambers from Stephenville. My husband is more than me, but we've been involved with senior hockey since the 1980s. How so? Go back with the transistor radio in your pocket and listen to the call-by-call game on the ice. And we definitely will be in Cornerbrook on Saturday. Uh, we're upset that Stephenville Jets don't have a team very unfortunate. We've got a beautiful stadium here, but they couldn't hide the team. But we definitely will be in Cornerbrook on Saturday, and there's lots of memories. My husband was a bus driver, and he drove the Cornerbrook Royals, the Dealey Red Wings, and the Stephenville Jets many, many times to senior hockey. Yeah, I spent a lot of road, a lot of time on the road with uh, hockey as well. So share us a couple of your fave memories as a fan of, or whatever your family involvement was with senior. Uh, not family wasn't involved as playing, but I guess it was just family that was very involved with participation, being family members and fans, and Max would hold, get a holding seat in Deer Lake because I've got a lot of family in Deer Lake. And when, there was times when Max went in storms and went to, to see the hockey games and came home in the storms. So there, there were lots of memories. If, if Max were here, I'm sure he would share more memories than me. But we do have many, many memories of the West Coast senior hockey. Yeah, we played a lot of hockey out on the West Coast. It was always exciting to get in and play the Royals at the Humber Gardens or to get down in Stephenville and play on that international size ice, which was the only ice surface of that size in the province. Uh, oh, yeah. I suffered a terrible injury one time out in Stephenville uh, playing on that rink, but that's neither here nor there. So over the years, who are some of your favorite Jets, Stephenville oh, Jets? Jets. Uh, oh, my, let me go back. Donny House. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. NHLer. Favorite Jet. Uh, the local guys, Billy Hines. Uh, let me see. I can't, I can't think of back to the 80s, but, oh. And now, this past year, I guess we had the, oh, let me see. I can't think of the names. Probably too many to think of, but there, are, there were, there wasn't many games we didn't attend, I can guarantee you, in Stephenville. Well, me too. Uh... I, some people throw this around as an insult, but rink rat, I was one. <laughs> I can guarantee I spent a lot of time in the rink, whether it be watching the junior Celtics on a Saturday night or watch my brother play or watch some of the guys that I was a big fan of. And certainly down around the Memorial Stadium, most importantly when Dad, my father, who was a big part of the uh, St. John's Caps for years, I never missed, uh, let alone a game, I saw a lot of practices. So I loved it. Loved it. And my husband was a coach driver, too, so he not only took the Jets around and the Royals, he did a lot with them, the A team from Cornerbrook to St. John's, Mount Pearl, and things like that. So he really was involved with the hockey and transportation. 
I think it was great. I can remember a bunch of the bus drivers as well. So, uh, but between myself and Darren Colbert, just exchanging messages. I'm not supposed to be doing this on the program, but I'll take my chances here this morning. Uh, you're going to go get a pair of tickets waiting for you at the Civic Center. I'm going to send your name and your telephone number to Darren Colbert now so that he can set you up, maybe give you a call and tell you the where the winds you can pick up your ticket. Yeah, he's quite familiar. He knows my husband quite well. Oh, no doubt he does. So my favorite jet, I know this guy is from... Uh, Cornerbrook, but some of the old Quinn boys, whether it be Ed or Juan, and some of those guys, they were my guys. And Dave Matt, goaltender. Oh, oh Dave Matt, guaranteed. And Joe yeah. Goldender, Dave, definitely. One of the funniest chants ever is you'd be down at the Memorial Stadium, and Matt would be well, he was one of the best goaltenders ever played in the province. Mm-hmm. And the big chant was, Mope, 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 Mope. It was really funny, but Matt was a great player. Oh, uh, good to have you on the show, Blanche. Safe travels into Cornerbrook for the game on Saturday night. We'll definitely be there. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Blanche. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, I'll send that along. To Mr. Colburn, okay, let's go ahead and uh, take a break. When we come back, tons of time left in the program to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line four. Roz, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty, and uh, Happy New Year to you. Same to you. I'm, I'm calling this morning about uh, uh, before Christmas, uh, I, I went out to get a flu shot. And uh, while I was there, I picked up a few items that were on special. And I went to the cash. There was no cash there. And this man insisted that I use the machine. You know, come up and I'll show you how to use the machine. And so I, I, I went forward with it, and I, I gave, he checked in all my stuff for me. And um, then he said, okay, now he said, put in your debit card. And I said, I haven't got a debit card. I said, you're taking it for granted that everyone got a debit card. And you're not, you're not providing service for anyone that just got cash. And I was kind of upset about it, and it, it's brewing me right through Christmas about it because it's seniors like me that take your cash and I got so much money sent, set, set aside for groceries and so much set aside for bills and you know and uh, the part is once that money is gone it's gone so I don't have a credit card that I can put stuff on and it you know I was talking to a couple of seniors after and they said the same thing that they take an envelope, and they put their groceries mon- money in it, and they put, you know, for different things. And once that money is gone, it's gone. They don't want to be going to their credit card to use extra money. Sure, but there's a long way between your credit card and your debit card, and, and not to pry, and you don't have to answer. Is there a reason why you don't have a debit card for situations like that? Because I'm one of the ones that uh, take my money and make sure I don't overspend if I got a debit card and I'm and I'm tapping or whatever, I don't know how much I'm really spending on to. I keep account of all the receipts, and sometimes, Patty, I lose the receipts. So I got to go wait until my my uh, receipt, my statement from the bank comes in to make sure I'm not overspending. Yeah, I understand that people who want to. 
manage their money. There's some safeguards you can put in place, and this is just for information, and you can do with it as you see fit. Like, you can get a debit card and ask the bank to not allow you, say, an overdraft. A lot of people, they'll have an overdraft to spend money they don't have, you know, different numbers, and some could be as much as $500 for certain customers or clients of certain banks, but I understand why you don't have one if you're very careful and don't want to spend something you don't have. But in some instances, it's nice to have that just for the convenience of it. But I still know many seniors who are, they, they carry cash. That's their thing. They like the cash. Yeah, and, and the part is, um, you know, Patty, as you get become a senior, your services are getting less and less in every store. One time, if you, you know, if you couldn't handle something, they had a person there to help you with your groceries and everything. But all of that's in the past now. You don't, you know, you got no service whatsoever. So all of these companies that are making millions of dollars don't want to provide service anymore. They want you to serve yourself, pack your groceries, do everything yourself. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's anyone else that, that it bothers. It bothers me as a senior. And like I said, not all seniors can carry their groceries out to, the, out to their cars either. But no one cares about that anymore. You know, I'm just speaking up on behalf of, um, and our population is is getting elder, or getting older. They're not getting younger. That's true. I mean, you think about two days gone by in a grocery store. He'd have the person on the cash. He'd have someone bagging groceries. There'd be people strolling around who were able to help you get the groceries to the car. It's not like that anymore. No, you're not getting no. You're not getting no service at all now. And and the part is, is no one speaking out about it. It bothers me that you know you're spending your good, you're you're taking the time to go out and buy stuff off these companies, but they don't want to give you any service anymore. And and the part is, it is coming to digital service, and and the young ones fine and dandy. You know, like I said, I see kids out there and they got their own debit cards. That's great. They grew up with that. But to me, as as a safety net. I I put away certain amount of money for certain things, and I and once that money is gone, is gone. I can see how much I got left, and 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 you know, and the part is, these companies should be uh, uh, doing stuff. You know, they're they're making the line. Even going to Walmart, the cashiers they only got two cash cashes open, but all the machines are opened. But and their their lines are right down to the back of the store sometimes. And uh, they're not going to open the cashier. But they've got girls they are showing you how to use the machine, but they're trying to insist that you use the machines. And I think, you know, as a, as a customer, I should be entitled to a little bit of service. I don't know. Probably I'm the only person out there thinking that way. No, you're not. A uh, couple of thoughts from me. Like, I try to use... Uh, a line at the cashier that actually has a physical employee running the cash. The self-checkouts are very popular, you know, because uh, generally speaking, they're a little bit quicker, especially if you just have a couple of items, a couple of quick scans, you tap your debit card, and off you go. But uh, I know I'm, I'm probably in the minority on this one, but look, inside of that retail world, it's about profit and profit margin. I get it. I understand what they're trying to accomplish here, but if I had my druthers, there would be a tax applied to every 
cashless or pardon me every self-checkout because it's replacing someone who could have a job so gone are that person's opportunities to have a job gone are the opportunities for the province and the federal government to take taxes out of their paycheck so i would let them off scott free there be a fee associated with having a self-checkout if uh, if i had any say in the matter yeah, and and Patty, I don't know if you noticed too. In, in another establishment that I went to, I went through the cash. I wasn't stopped at the door. But if people that are going through them machines, they're checking their bags all the time. So in other words, if I went up and used them machines and made a mistake, am I going to be picked up for shoplifting? That well, something never scanned for me. Well, if you, you know, laid it out, I'm, no, I'm just I you know surmising this could happen. Because, like I said, how come they are checking all of these bags that go through the machines now? Well, the ability to, uh, you know, take your five-finger discount is much more available when you are relying on checking out your own goods versus you put everything on the belt, the cashier scans it through. You know, it would be hard to envision unless you did some bit of skullduggery like you had it up your shirt or down your pants or you were trying to hide it, left it on the bottom uh, bottom shelf of the cart, something purposeful to rip them off. But I understand why they check people leaving who have just done a self-checkout because, you know, the temptation is real. No, oh, yeah. People and, think and maybe this is not. Not everyone is dishonest either. No. They can make, an, an e, you know, a mistake, Patty. Oh, yeah. yeah you for know, sure. they can make a mistake. That if something went in and you didn't know it was going in. I, I'm not saying, to, you know, like I said, I don't believe in stealing. Never did, never will. I was brought up different from that. Uh, but the part is, like um, like I said, even with your item, you know, how do you go back and, okay, you check in something and, oh, it was on specially when you were going through the aisle. You're going through the aisle, and it was on special. But at the cashier, you can say to the cash, I'm sorry, honey, that was on sale. And But if you're going through the machines, how do you know, you know, how do you get your money back? Well, there's there's ways to rectify it at the cash. Uh, Whatever is advertised as on sale in the store, on the shelf, you should be able to get that price. And they might even be able to cut you a deal. There's certain, you know, you have to look at the sticker at the cash register. But that's an interesting point, that the self-checkout, if you thought something was on sale for two ninety nine, but you scanned it yourself and it's, they, they charge you three ninety nine, then you got to avoid it all. You got to get back in line. You got to try to get a human being to rectify the situation. So that's an interesting one that I didn't think of. Yeah, and see, Patty, like I said, as someone watching every cent that they spend, mm-hmm. and, and you know, you're going looking for a bargain. You know, and most people are. You're going looking for a bargain. And uh, like I said, I don't want to be forced to do stuff that I don't need to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. And to me, you know, it's great that you like to serve yourself and it's faster for you. No, I don't. I choose to go to the lineups with oh, the cashier. I'm yeah. sorry about that, Dan. You know, well, I, I, think, I see it as a way to do away with so many jobs. And I know, look, retail can be very difficult as an employee because people are quick to shoot the messenger and be very mean-spirited to someone who's working the cash or working the the clothes rack but i see it as a job and you know if i start doing the self-checkout 
and more and more people start doing the self-checkout, less likely you're ever going to have someone who's a human being behind the cash. So I think it's a, a growing problem. Automation is great. Technology is great. But we still can't allow it to be the only recourse for companies is to hire someone to create the robot, hire someone to create the automation that takes away uh, so many jobs. And plus, it's good skill training to get into different jobs down the line. Dealing with the public can be very frustrating. No need to ask me. But... It can also be good training ground for your next job in your professional life, wherever it takes you. Uh, last word to you, Roz, before I go. Yes, and, and, you know, I like to thank all the cashiers as I go through, you know, for their service. And just let them know that as a human being, I appreciate everything they do for me. And uh, that's my final word for today, Petty. And have a nice day. Appreciate the time. Okay. Take care, Roz. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I know people think I might be half-cracked on that, but look, if there was someone working the, the cash, one, they have a job. Number two, they pay taxes. Taxes pay for an awful lot of the things that we use day in and day out in the country. So if, just pick a retail outlet. You just pick one on your own head. If they had 20 tills and now they only have five, but they have 15 self-checkouts, a fee associated with replacing a human being with automation, it's not the dumbest thing in my mind, but if you want to, Offer your thoughts on that or anything else. You can do it right after this. Don't go away. Is Dave there to uh, take me to the break? <laughs> I don't see him there, so I guess I'm going to keep talking for a second. Quick check in on the Twitter box. We're FIOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Uh, Kirby says, in some stores, they can't get workers, which is why some have introduced self-checkers. That's part of it. But I think sometimes we maybe fall for the corporate line a little bit on that front as well. So... You know, that takes us down a very different road about what is a fair rate of pay for the job you're taking on. Yes, there's going to be some outlets that have a hard time finding servers, but it's different than trying to find someone to work in a fast food joint and or a coffee shop or what have you versus in traditional industries, much more well understood, like the grocery store or the pharmacy or what have you. So I get that argument. There might be some difficulty in getting the self, uh, getting a human being to take on that gig. But I don't think that number keeps up with the pace of replacing them with the self-checkout option. Let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Happy right. New Year. Dear. Happy New Year. I'm doing fine. How about you? Good, my good. Good. Patty and Colin, regarding the uh, issue and the ambulance issue on the southern shore again, for I don't know how many times I've called in a good many times regarding this. You know, we had an incident on uh, Monday night. I got an email that there's no coverage in Trapassi, no coverage in Cape Royal because, I guess, ambulance operators. And another incident uh, from a gentleman on Monday night that had to wait for an ambulance to come from St. John's to go further up the shore. And, uh, you know, we've been speaking about this for a long period of time. Uh, there's a report into the government since 2015 on ambulance service and they just don't seem to want to do anything about it or haven't done anything about it. Now we're looking at a pending strike. I mean, the people in the area are worried, and they're worried enough with, you know, I had incident in the summer that we had one weekend had with three different uh, ambulances had to be dispatched from Holy Road to respond to calls in Cape Oil, you know, with two ambulances sitting in the yard. So, you know, it's time for the government to get down and look at this and get this issue resolved. Who services? Is it an Eastern Health ambulance goes up the shore, or is it a private service? I think when you come to St. John's, it's uh, Eastern Health, but there's a private service uh, that uh, answers up here. We've got to figure that out. I can't even remember how long we've been talking about the difference between privately owned, publicly owned, the rate of pay, the numbers of hours on call, 
everything involved. And let's not forget, there was a couple of years or a few years ago, we had that amount of missing money inside the private ambulance service. Then we've got the threat of job action. There's some 100-plus paramedics and ambulance operators that are poised to go on strike now or have a work-to-rule sort of job action in place. So the government, I have no earthly idea as to why there's such a difference between all the ambulance, ground ambulance operators here, it's not getting any better. And I guarantee you, if we had, just for a round number, if we had 1,000 paramedics in 2019, we don't have 1,000 any longer. Well, there's no question, Patty. And, you know, we've, I've been in at this job now for three years. And, you know, it is one of my biggest issues that, that's been coming up every day or every second day you're getting calls on ambulances and response times, basically. And, you know, the government uh, don't seem to, they haven't ever said, let's sit down and let's discuss this or speak with the owners or speak with whoever they got to speak to. It just hasn't happened. And I think it's you know, time now. You know, it's very common that they get to the bottom of this and, and get it solved because, you know, taking these calls is, is heart-wrenching to hear some of these calls, i got to say. Yeah, and, I mean, it doesn't even matter what the reason is for needing an ambulance. The one call we got from, uh, from up the shore yesterday was a mental health response. And, right. you know, he went on to say that had it been a cardiac issue, that person may have died 10 times over be- between waiting for the ambulance and then, of course, passage into the health sciences complex. So it's an issue that the government knows about. That's, you know, sometimes when things happen very quickly and or in the course of a month, we see X number of professionals of one discipline or another leave for whatever reason. Then it becomes a little bit more tricky and government's not nimble to say the very least they're actually very rigid and working at a glacial pace pace but we know this issue this is not new very much like every discrepancy and or shortage across healthcare, this has not happened overnight this is not just this edition of the liberal government this goes back a long time we've been talking about it i've been talking about it for years well in advance of the Dwight Ball 2016 victory. These things have been growing for a number of years. I'm going to say 20 years this has been growing and evolving. If we look back to some of the numbers that have come, for instance, the Canadian Health Institute, handle work being done here in the province, looking at the aging demographic, where the population lives, where the population density is, where th- some of the aging communities have lost their services. It hasn't happened overnight, but it doesn't seem we've done a lot. Now, in the effort to offer... This is not kudos or congratulations, but some of the numbers that have come from government regarding their most recent healthcare worker initiatives, looks like there's been some upper tick in the numbers of people working here, whether it be on the come home year initiatives that were dangled and or ongoing recruitment. But we don't know if any of those people that are being quoted as just a number, if any of them are paramedics. There's no question. Like they just throw out these numbers, or you know, you'd like to sit there and say, where did he come from? How are they making them? Where are they getting them to? But you know, we don't see the results right now, and hopefully, we do see the results. That's that's, you know, that's the positive thing. We do see them, but you know, we're not seeing them right now in our ambulance issue in in this district of Fairland. So it's you know, it's a bit unnerving to sit here and wait for the next call. You know that uh, you don't know we're going to have, and uh, it's. it's just it's unnerving, i got to say, because, you know, it affects you. You, when you get people calling in, you know, they're in distress, and you're trying to help them as best you can, and you're trying to do that, you know, the best serve your constituents. And, you know, how many more times have I got to bring this up before somebody sits down and looks at it and does something about it? Yeah, and, uh, I, you know, again, there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a quote-unquote silver bullet. There's not a an easy flip-of-a-switch solution. I don't think it's fair to say that government's doing nothing. But we are talking about a hyper-competitive landscape for the most mobile professionals, in-demand professionals in the world. 
certainly in the country. And it's not to minimize government's role in this, but fighting the good fight against all the other provinces. And, you know, whether it be about radiation therapists or respiratory therapists, to know that Nova Scotia visited with our graduates before we did is galling. You know, it's one example where you can put forward a comprehensive suite of incentives, but if you don't have the opportunity inside your captive audience to upon their enrollment and the first day that their bumps hit the seat to be actively engaged with them about opportunities down the line contractual obligations that they may indeed be able to entertain ready to pay perks incentives this is your home province we're subsidizing your education but to know that people are leaving before we get a chance to talk to them when they were going to school here and in some cases within a five kilometer range of confederation building is just hard to understand it is really hard to understand. And not to say that they're not doing anything, probably, you know, not saying that properly, but, you know, since I've been at this, you know, we haven't seemed to come to any solution to try to, you know, to get this fixed. And that's the frustrating part for me, I guess. And it brings out some frustration that, you know, it seems like you're making these calls after calls and, you know, we don't seem to be making any headway with it. But, you know, I know they're working on it, but, you know, there's going to be a time that is, you know, with no ambulance service at some point in time in the next day, two days, next week that, you know, they're not going to be able to respond. And, and it's and it's disturbing, i got to say. You know, something that we should be looking at, you know, getting down and looking to it and and getting there. You know, let's meet. Let's get together and see what we can do to help it. You know, so that's what that's where I'd love to see that go. And, uh, you know, to say that they're not doing nothing, no, that's well, it's just a frustration level of, you know, making call after call to you or whoever that may be. And, you know, it's just uh, something that, uh, you know, we need to get done for sure. Appreciate the time this morning, Loyola. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Here's some just recent numbers. And, of course, the breakdown is not that clear. But because of this, according to the minister responsible, of course, Tom Osborne, the medical bursary program resulted in the recruitment of 19 professionals, while the family practice program resulted in 23 physicians opening or joining family practice clinics for a five-year commitment. Are they all new to the system? Secondly, it doesn't factor in how many people left. So it's one thing to talk about a net gain or net uh, increase in the numbers, but you have to factor in if you're getting down to the brass tacks, net has to include how many people left inside of those disciplines at the same time. Then they go on to say that because of the come home year incentive, and that was if you had a connection to the province and or were born here, trained here, there was some money's dangle to bring you back to the province to set up shop and work as a full-time healthcare worker. They say that program resulted in 30 people who are in the process of being hired. Then they go on to mention the relationship or the partnership program we're trying to strike in Ireland and the recruitment desk to hire registered nurses in India. No numbers given as to the success or lack thereof for those two uh, particular initiatives, but some of the numbers look okay, but unless we get the number associated with how many left, then it probably only paints the rosy side of the picture as opposed to the complete picture. Now, before we get to the news, off the top of the show, there's one lady in particular was, I think, displeased with how I broached the conversation about the New Year's baby. And it was all about the good news of welcoming Casey Howell into the world on New Year's Day. And, of course, the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association gives the family a child seat. I went on to say you have to be really careful with how you install it because it's not as simple as just throwing it in there, strapping the seatbelt around, and you're off to the races. And then it was when it's safe to turn a rear-facing seat to a front-facing seat. I think I maybe said something very clumsily along the lines of, you know, when they're strong enough and big enough to take it uh, with the strength of uh, neck and awareness of head. And the lady went on to say, the recommendation is really to leave them rear-facing as long as possible, to talk about it with someone who knows way more about it than I do, and to get the real facts of the matter. And the best 
practices and best advice out there. We're going to be joined by a lady who's the promotions uh, specialist with Child Pastor Safety with IWK Child Safety Limited. That's Catherine. She's up after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Join us on line number one is Catherine Hutka. She's the Health Promotion Specialist and Child Passenger Safety with IWK Child Safety Limited. She's also the President of Child Passenger Safety Canada. Good morning, Catherine. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So this all happened very innocently, and I'm the parent of two, but my boys are now in their 20s. So we were simply talking about the fact that young Casey Howell is the New Year's baby. I made some off-the-cuff and unfortunately flippant remark about rear-facing versus front-facing without getting into the brass tacks about where safety really, truly lies with child seats. My apologies. That's why we asked you to come on the show. <laughs> no problem. I'm, I'm here to answer all your questions. Right off the bat, before we get into installation and rear versus front-facing, people want to recycle baby stuff because if we all stopped buying baby stuff there'd be enough onesies and burp towels and cribs to go around for the rest of eternity but we don't we all go buy our own stuff but in the world of child seats taking one as a hand-me-down not a good idea well, you know, that's not to say that it isn't because, you know, you do, you might use a car seat for one child and you would obviously use it if it's not expired and it hasn't been damaged. You could absolutely safely use it for your next child. And you could also use a car seat that came from a trusted friend or perhaps your sister, someone you could ask those important questions like, has this car seat ever been in a crash or have you ever damaged this car seat in some key way that might make it unsafe? Um, that's not to say that you'd want to buy a car seat on Facebook Marketplace or, you know, at a yard sale. You definitely wouldn't. This is a safety device. You need it to, you know, save your baby's life in the case of a car crash. And you wouldn't want to trust that um, to just anybody selling a car seat on the side of the road. Certainly not. Okay. When you get your first child seat, I mean, there's lots of nerves and there's no textbook that comes with being a parent. There will be a handbook and some instructions about installation, but to get it done right. And not every car seat is uh, created equal and they all have different models and makes and styles, but putting it in right is the first step. It requires some time, some patience, and some real pressure to ensure it's as tight as possible. Just a little tug at the back of the seat and it doesn't feel like it wiggles too much is not necessarily enough. What do people really need to think about when they go to install the child seat? So you're absolutely right that, you know, children don't come with instruction manuals, but the car seat does. And so um, there are some basic resources that you can find on our website. It's childsafetylink.ca um, that are going to tell you the basics that you need to know, first of all, to make sure that your child is in the right seat. We were talking about rear-facing, forward-facing, you know, the next stage after that is booster seats. To make sure your child is first in the right stage of seat to buy a safe car seat, like we, we talked about, one that's not expired, it's not from an unknown source, you know, it's a Canadian safe purchase from a Canadian retailer uh, car seat. Um, and then, um, you know, there are those car seat basics, but really every car seat is different. They're going to come with their own instructions, but there's lots of places that you can find help with that as you're reading through those instructions. Um, sometimes the manufacturers have YouTube videos. They have their own customer service. And Child Safety Link also has a 1-800 number uh, that people in Newfoundland can call as well to answer their questions about their car seat. How do you know if you've done it right? Because parents are loving and caring and they don't want to make that mistake to improperly install. But how do you know you've actually done it right? Right. So there are resources that you can check. You know, like I said, all of those resources that I previously mentioned. And most people 
um, you know, if they follow all of their instructions and they read all of those resources, can do a pretty good job. But sometimes you've got a situation where you're not sure where you're like, okay, I actually need some in-person help, some some phone-a-friend help. I need someone to, to help me with this particular question. And so in that case, I would totally recommend, you know, you can call Child Safety Link. Um, there's also some in-person support in Newfoundland um, it, with family resource centers. And so there's you, generally a family resource center in most communities in Newfoundland. And some of them do have trained child passenger safety technicians. And so that's a person who's taken a three-day course um, on how to teach parents and families how to choose the right car seat and how to install and use it safely. And so um, you can find those folks at your local family resource center. And there's also a link on cpsac.org um, for find a tech. And so those are individuals who can help parents and families, um, you know, look at that in person or even look at, look at that car seat virtually, you know, through a, through a Zoom call or something like that in some cases um, to, to answer those questions where I don't think I've quite got it right. There's something off about this. Can anyone just let me know, you know, what I've done here? Yeah, because I won't give out the name of the outfit now because I'm not sure they still do it. But you could just drop by and someone would come out and check the child seat on your behalf to see if you have done it right. Okay. So, well, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, with the pandemic, there's not as many people trained. Sure. But that's not to say that there aren't some resources at the Family Resource Center. I know that the Royal Constabulatory in St. John's has two people who are who are currently trained um, in how to uh, teach parents and caregivers how to choose and use their car seats safely. So you come home and you use the infancy, which doubles as a carrier. And then, you know, somewhere between, I don't know, 9, 12 months, the baby outgrows. It's where you get a more permanent, without the ability to just lift it out and use it as a baby carrier. You get into the child seat. What's the rule of thumb as to when? Because not every child is the exact same size at 12 months of age. So what do you need to look for before you move off to the baby carrier into a permanent child seat in the car? Right. So um, one one important thing to know is that when is that infant carrier, that, that uh, rear-facing only, that bucket car seat, when is that outgrown? And so we want to make sure that the child um, doesn't exceed the weight or the height limits for that particular seat. Um, and the other thing is you can move in early to the next stage seat as long as you know that your next seat is that larger rear-facing convertible. So no one should be moving from the infant bucket seat into a forward-facing seat. Everyone, your next seat is going to be the larger rear-facing convertible. And then you're absolutely right. The recommendation is to stay in that rear-facing seat for as long as they still fit by height and weight. And almost all seats go to, you know, at least 40 inches tall and 40 pounds. And so we know that your child is safest riding rear-facing until age two, three, or even four years old, as long as they still fit in that larger rear-facing seat. And this is not to uh, spread fear, but just to acknowledge how important this piece of work is, is that motor vehicle crashes still are the number one cause of death for children in the country, which is extraordinary. And not to make people afraid, but just to reiterate how important it is to get this right. Okay. Rear-facing seat. And that's why we're here, and that's why this is our focus as well. I'm glad you're sharing some of the focus with us this morning. So I'm in the rear-facing seat, and you know, the parent always wants to make sure that there's a level of comfort. And you know, we see people driving around with their seatbelt, they got one of these uh, uh, paddings that they bought, a Canadian tire or something, and they're putting something behind the baby. All of these things to ensure as comfortable a ride as possible. Is it a good idea? Because the belts aren't designed for any additional pads or blankets or sponges or head rests or something akin to what I would wear on an aircraft. What should people consider about comfort and adding things to the seat which weren't necessarily designed for the seat? 
Right. So when you think about it, if you were to strap on a parachute and jump out of an airplane, would you want to add extra padding between you and those parachute straps? Right. When you think about that initial impact, you know, um, something that's going to hold you in extreme forces, you want to make sure that you're not adding anything extra that could introduce any kind of slack in the harness. Right. And so when it comes to car seats, you can use things that are approved by the manufacturer. You can use the padding that came with your car seat. Um, but we don't want to add anything like a puffy coat or a snowsuit or um, or those those bunting bags, the things that go in behind a baby. We don't want to add anything between the baby and the car seat or between the child and the harness. We want to make sure that it's just the harness and just the regular car seat that they're coming in contact with. And once they're buckled up, we're not talking about putting them in, in a T-shirt. You know, they can wear, you know, a fleece sweater. You can add um, the coat backwards over their arms after they're safely buckled. You can add blankets over top. You can add a hat, mitts, and boots. But we don't want anything big or bulky that could compress in that moment of a crash and make those already tightened straps suddenly too loose because we don't want the baby to be partially ejected to come out of those straps in any way in that moment of those extreme crash forces. And through the process of putting the baby in and taking the baby out and rinse and repeat, sometimes inadvertently you might move that chest clip around. And so what once would have been, you know, very much across the uh, the xiphoid process or the armpit, I guess the best way to put that, somewhere yeah, yeah. around your <laughs> armpit, uh, all of a sudden through just maneuvering the belt, all you've got it down around their belly button. You've got to make sure, I'm, well, I guess I should ask this as a question. How important is it to make sure that that chest clip remains where it's supposed to be? Because there's a lot of different between protection when it's up around your armpit level versus if it all of a sudden is below your rib cage or down around your belly. Right. So I think it's important to know what the chest clip does. And so the chest clip's job is to keep those shoulder straps over the child's shoulders. So if it's down around their belly, maybe those shoulder straps are going to fall off of their shoulders or in the moment of a crash, they won't be properly positioned to hold the child in. And so that's why it's so important for the chest clip to be at armpit level. Its job is to hold those straps together to make sure that they stay over the child's shoulders in that moment of a crash. Yeah, I'm sorry I threw a xiphoid process into the conversation. Was, it's absolutely fine. I work at a hospital, so I hear that. Okay, it was pretty unnecessary, <laughs> though. <come up. laughs> okay, so now I'm growing, and I'm thinking that my child is able to move out of their front-facing child seat because now they're really gangly and dangly, and it doesn't look like it's, one, comfortable, and two, safe. When do you really know it's booster seat time? Is it based on height, weight, comfort? Because how do you evaluate that? Because some children, I see them in their front-facing child seats when they're big enough to play hockey. And now all of a sudden they're still in that seat. But then I see other little tykes who've made their way to a booster seat. What's the rule of thumb? Well, let's talk about moving from a rear-facing seat to a forward. Okay, let's do that we first. talked about their safest as long as possible. But once they outgrow that next-level rear-facing seat, it's time for a forward-facing seat. And the key thing I want to talk about here is when you attach it to the car seat, one step that a lot of parents miss is that extra step of attaching the tether. And that is so important for a forward-facing seat because we know that it can reduce how far the child's head moves forward and therefore reduce those head, neck, and spine injuries in a forward-facing car seat. So I wanted to mention that just because we know it is a key factor that a lot of parents are missing. And it's legally required for all provinces and territories in Canada, but um, but it's something that sometimes gets missed, right? Because it's not on the rear-facing seat. And so sometimes parents, when they move to the forward-facing seat, they miss that key step. So I wanted to mention that first. Well, it's a good one because most manufacturers would have an anchor there to accommodate the tether. 
Oh, absolutely. There's at least three anchors in most passenger cars. Right. So you just have to choose a spot that has that anchor in it, in, in the car for that forward-facing seat. So directly behind the driver, because we all like to have a look at the child too, right? Maybe it's just for our own, uh, ingratiating our own wants, but where should the, uh, that forward-facing seat be? Behind me, in the middle, behind the passenger seat, or is it just personal preference? It's just personal preference. So we want to keep kids in the back seat, of course, but, um, but we need to make sure that a forward-facing seat has a position where they're either attached with the lower anchors, the little clips, or the seatbelt at the bottom, like the back of the seat. And then at the top, we want to make sure that that tether at the top of the car seat is attached to its own designated tether anchor in the car. And so wherever, wherever those tether anchors are, you'll find it in your vehicle manual to tell you where they're at. Um, you want to make sure that that car seat is in, is in a position that has that. Okay, so it's not just uh, when you're the occupant of a forward-facing, rear-facing, and or booster seat, but now they're getting a bit bigger and they want to ride up front with dad. Most manufacturers in most modern vehicles, they will have a weight sensor that talks about the airbag. What do people need to know about when they all of a sudden and you just can't handle it anymore and they want to ride up front? What do we need to know about airbags? Here's what we need to know, and that's to hold fast. If you look on the um, the the the, what's it called, the, the visor on every vehicle, it'll say children 12 and under, it's recommended or required for them to sit in the back seat, okay? And that comes from research that shows um, that, that kids under tw- um, 12 and under can be seriously injured in the front seat, more so than their peers who are older. And so we know that the recommendation, and it's just a safety recommendation, it's not the law, that children aren't safe in the front seat until age 13. And so we want to keep them in the back seat for as long as possible, point them to the mirror and say, no, it says you're still 12, back seat for you. Um, and that's for a lot of different reasons. One is that airbag. I know you talked about the weight sensor, but has anyone's ever put a package or a large purse on that seat and gone around a corner too fast and had that light flash on and off where the airbag turns on? It's not something you want to trust a child's life with. And so when it comes to a rear-facing car seat, never, ever, ever, ever can it go in the front seat. Um, a forward-facing car seat is not going to have that tether. And so you can't put that ever in a front seat. Um, you know, and most booster seats will say on them, it's not allowed to go in front of an airbag. And so in those cases, we're really only looking at those kids who've outgrown that booster seat. And even then, we know the young ones, the littler ones, the lighter ones, the, and the younger ones are safest in the back seat. And so why mess with that? Last one before we let you go, Catherine. And again, sometimes this is inadvertently done and no one's meaning any malice towards, of course, their own child or even friends of their, of their children, is the seatbelt and the height of the seatbelt and where it crosses your body, very much akin to the conversation we had about the chest uh, link. So most seatbelts are easily adjustable. Where is it supposed to ride? Because I see sometimes I get a bit of a cringe where the seatbelt looks like it's perilously close to the neck. What do people need to know about how to place a seatbelt properly? Right. And so we want the, the, that shoulder harness. We always want to make sure that a child, an adult, everyone is using that shoulder belt and that it goes between their neck and their shoulder. That's where we want it. It's not safe. It's never safe tucked under your arm. That'll just slide down and cause lots of injuries to your internal organs. And also then nothing's holding back the top part of your body. And so there's a lot of injuries that you can get to your head, neck, and spine by tucking that under your arm or behind your back. Super, excuse me, super unsafe. But when it comes to, we don't want it off their shoulder either because we don't want that child or adult to rotate out around that belt. And so, you know, 
the only the real risk with it being on their neck is that it's uncomfortable and they'll move it away, right? But we want it as as far up on their shoulders as we can, across their collarbone and touching their chest. Um, and so you can make adjustments so that it's off of their neck. And a child who has it up on their neck may need a high back booster seat. So a seat that has that high back with a shoulder belt adjustment or another kind of shoulder belt adjustment that's just going to pull it off their neck a little bit so that it's not so uncomfortable that they do something dangerous with it. And so that's really important is to always have that shoulder belt. And we did talk briefly about that transition from using a forward-facing car seat to a booster seat. And the key factor there is they need to be at least 40 pounds. In Canada, there are no booster seats that you can use legally with a child under 40 pounds. And we also want to make sure that a child has the maturity to fit correctly. We talked about moving that harness that, or sorry, that diagonal belt off of their shoulder. If a younger child was uncomfortable, they might fall asleep, slip out of that, that seatbelt. And we want to make sure that seatbelt is fitting correctly on the strongest parts of their body before they move into a booster seat. And so some kids might have that maturity at four, but most kids are going to be closer to five, six, or even seven years old before they're ready to go in that booster seat to fit correctly. Um, and they have to be at least 40 pounds. And there are lots of car seats that now that can take a child 40, 50, 65 pounds in a harness car seat. And so we know that they're safer in that harness car seat until they're ready. Whether I be a daycare provider or a me and mom uh, organizer or me and dad organizer, one of the baby clubs, is there a formal process where I could be certified as a car seat fitter so I can be of service in the community? Right. So there actually are two different courses. The first one, if you are a daycare provider or um, family home daycare provider, or you transport children for your work at, say, a Boys and Girls Club or through foster care, there is a free online on-demand training that Child Safety Link uh, can send you the link for. If you write us, we've got an, a two-and-a-half-hour online on-demand training for, um, for those who are transporting other people's children as a part of their work, as a part of their day. Um, and we also do have the, the three-day training as well, the Child Passenger Safety Technician Training. And it's offered a few times a year through, um, through the Child Passenger Safety Association of Canada. There are different instructors. Um, there's a few instructors in different uh, communities uh, in Newfoundland as well. Really appreciate the time this morning, Catherine. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Call anytime. Sounds great. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. That's Catherine Hitka. She's the Health Promotion Specialist, Child Passenger Safety with IWK, Child Safety Limited. That was enlightening. And, you know, sometimes it might come across as very mundane, but the most caring, loving, nan, pop, mom, dad, caregiver, aunt, uncle, brother, sister might not be as attentive to some of the very fine points because the safety of the child is really completely reliant on the attentiveness of whoever puts the kid in the vehicle. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. We don't want to shortchange anybody else here this morning, so we're going to wrap it up with this. Uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.